will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you, we may be seated. The sound that was playing took me aback. I thought we are in a different country. <laughs> so, uh, let's uh, observe the protocols, honorable members, in the interest of safety. We all know that at all times we adhere by putting on our masks. The first item on the order paper is a motion in the name of the Chief Whip of the Majority Party. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson of the House and the members of this August House. I move on behalf of the Chief Whip of the Majority Party that the House knows with, that the House with the concurrence of the National Council of Provinces one recognizes that climate change and global warming have become priorities for South Africa and the global community. Number two knows that South Africa has made a number of commitments to combat climate change in the context of a just transition and a sustainable development. Number three, further knows that Parliament requires a, a coordinated, consultative approach to ensure that it can oversee and contribute to South Africa's climate change strategy. Number four, therefore, results in accordance with the Joint Rules 142 to establish a Joint Steering Committee on Climate Change for the duration of the sixth Parliament and the committee, the committee to 1A facilitate the coordination of parliamentary activities related to climate change. B, facilitate joint parliamentary program of action to prioritize climate issues and commitments. C, be co-chaired by a house chairperson from each house. D, exercise those powers provided for in the joint rules 3.2 and 3.3 and may consult any other committee or forum. E, have power to establish some committees to assist with the fulfillment of its of mandate. F, consists of the following. One member designated from each of the portfolio committees on agriculture, land reform, and rural development, higher education, science, and technology, human settlements, water and sanitation, international relations and cooperation, public enterprises, minerals and energy, trade and industry and transport. One member designated from each of the select committees in the, in, on education and technology, sports, arts and culture, trade and industry, economic development, small business development, tourism, employment and labor, cooperative governance and traditional affairs, water and sanitation and human settlements, land reform, environment, mineral resources and energy public enterprises and communications and transport, public service and administration, public works and infrastructure. One member designated from each of the standing and select committees on finance and appropriation. Number four, 11 other members from the National Assembly 
six from the ANC, two from the DA, one from the EFF, and other two parties, and nine other members from the National Council of Provinces, and report to the House to the, to the House at least annually. I so move, Chair. Thank you very much. As I put the motion and ask whether there are any objections to the motion. No objections agreed to. The secretary will read the first order. Consideration of report of portfolio committee on health on national health amendment bill, bill number 29 of 2018. I will now call on the honorable Jacobs from the chamber to introduce the report of the bill. Thank you, Chairperson. The National Health Amendment Bill B29 of 2018 was a private member's bill tabled and referred to the committee on 3 September 2018. The bill had lapsed in accordance with the National Assembly rules, which are rules 3332 at the end of the fifth parliament and was revived during the sixth parliament. The bill sought to amend Section 4 of the National Health Act Number 61 of 2003 to provide that clinics in the public sector must open and operate for 24 hours and seven days a week. The committee met with the sponsor of the bill, Honorable Dr. Susan Temacuayo, on 7 October 2020 to receive a briefing relating to the bill's contents and provisions. The committee subsequently received input on the bill from the National Department of Health on the 21st of October, 2020. Okay, is Veronica, as I believe, here on stage. Thank you, Chairperson. Following extensive committee deliberations and input from the Department of Health, the committee concluded that the National National Health Amendment Bill in its current form would have massive financial implications on the Department of Health and that the quantification of costs had not been done. Moreover, it was of concern to the committee that the country was currently under financial stress and that the Department of Health would have, to, would have great difficulty in adjusting its current budget against the health requirements resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. The committee understood that the Department of Health has committed to ensure that ultimately all primary health care facilities operated for 24 hours a day and that this goal would be achieved through progressive means as and when the resources become available. The committee was of the opinion that there is a need for comprehensive data on the factors informing the operation of 24-hour facilities such as human and financial resources needed for expanded service delivery. Further noting that the bill would require urgent investment in health infrastructure, which is not tenable given the current limited resources. In its deliberations, the committee noted that the bill was not subjected to a socioeconomic impact assessment system to determine whether the bill was the correct vehicle to achieve the intended objective. The committee was and continues to process the National Health Insurance Bill, which will likely have an impact on the proposed legislation as well as provide for consequential amendments of the National Health Act. 
Based on the aforementioned reasons, the committee adopted a motion that the bill was not desirable at this stage. The committee thanks Dr. Susan Tamakwayo for sponsoring the bill and in so doing, giving the committee the opportunity to engage in a continuous debate on improving the health system of our country. We are reminded that the goal of government is to address the access to quality and affordable health care to all the people of South Africa. This is in line with the Alma-Ata Declaration of 1978 of the World Health Organization. I will only quote the section on primary health care, open quote. Primary health care is essential health care based on practical, scientifically sound and socially acceptable methods and technology made universally accessible to individuals and families in the community through their full participation at a cost that the community and country can afford to maintain at every stage of their development in the spirit of self-reliance and self-determination. It forms an integral part of both of the country's health system, of which it is the central function and main focus, and of this overall social and economic development of the community. It is the first level of contact of individuals, the family, and community with the national health system, bringing healthcare as close as possible to where people live and work and constitutes the first elements of a continuing healthcare process, close quote. Chairperson, we are in the final stages of the processes of the NHI bill in the Portfolio Committee on Health. The EFF jumped the gun with this bill. Yet incomprehensibly, the EFF says that they do not support the NHI bill. Yet they were seeking to have our clinics open at this point in time, uh, as early as 2018, uh, on a 24-hour, on a, uh, seven-days-a-week uh, basis. A bill that seeks as its intention to achieve universal access to quality healthcare services in the Republic in accordance with Section 27 of the Constitution is something that they said they would not agree with. Uh, and this was ju done just yesterday as we were deliberating further on the bill. But this bill grants the opportunity to all the political parties to show that they do care about the poor and the marginalized. Change your perspective on the NHI bill. Please consider to support the NHI bill as we proceed further with the deliberations. Thank you once again, Chairperson. Thank you, Dr. Jacobs. I will now recognize the parties wishing to make a declaration, taking it from the DA. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. With reference to the proposed PMB by, Doc, by Honorable Dr. Timber Quayo, the DA supports the noble objective of extending access to medical care. The bill will realize bringing health care to the poor and vulnerable, in particularly within rural areas. The objectives in the bill with regards to improving access to health care services have indeed been realized, particularly within the city of Johannesburg under DA governance. The concerns that the DA have revolves around the practical implementation of such an amendment. Prior to the considering 
Prior to considering a legislative amendment, the first need to properly capacitate these clinics currently, this amendment would not solve the current problem of the access of healthcare services. Its implementation will place an enormous financial burden on the state that will inevitably hamstring other health programs, not to mention the impact that it will have on the NHR once implementing this bill. The national department and most provincial departments will not have the resources, staff, equipment to implement this bill as legislation. And expanding on current capacity may prove to be a bridge far too far. Currently, South Africa has 0.31 doctors per 1,000 patients. It is unclear where the necessary human resources will come from to meet the needs of clinics to operate at 24 hours. Doctors and nurses are already working extremely long hours, and the PMB does not take into consideration such shortages. Additionally, the financial resources needed would have to double. Considering the current economic context, COVID pandemic and its implications on the healthcare environment, the financial sustainability of such an amendment is questionable. Another concern I would like to raise around the state of compliance, norms and standards that is provided around our clinics. Should they be mandated and operated within 24 hours? I do not think that our clinics would cope with that kind of stress as, they do, as many of our clinics do not comply to the norms and standards. There are, to, there are a total of 3,473 public healthcare facilities of which only 2,200 facilities qualify as ideal clinics. This means that 63% of facilities comply with the norms and standards of which only 1,050 PHC facilities have adequate space to accommodate 24-hour services. The concerns raised is that the clinics that do not meet the criteria of ideal clinics pose a risk to the quality healthcare provided and could result in an increase of legal cases against the state. As long as the bill cannot be adequately implemented, it has no real value as legislation. The following caveat must be put in place to realize the outcome of this bill. A proper evaluation must be undertaken and at the hand of social requirements and the ability of the department. The undertaking of a SEIAS is therefore recommended to ensure that an informed decision is made in this regard. Expand, update and maintain health infrastructure to be able to accommodate the 24-hour service mandates. Expand and increase the number of healthcare workers in the sector. Have an adequate financing plan in order to sustain and meet financial demands of such a provision. The health committee must ensure that oversights are exercised in terms of these clinics. And in conclusion, indeed, the constitution does highlight the right to access to health services. However, the provision of resources provides for a limitation in this regard. We must therefore aim, in accordance with resource availability, to extend, to extend the operational times of clinics in order to meet the rights enshrined in Section 27.1 of the Constitution. However, I do not believe that this PMB will effectively result in increased and improved access to healthcare services, as it does not consider the human and financial resources 
This should be done in a phased approach in order to realize the outcomes of the PMB. Additionally, overworking doctors by stretching the 0.31 doctors available to provide services 24 hours will have a negative impact on staff morale and mental health, which would ultimately result in lower quality of health provisions. It is important to address every issue that hinders universal health care within the public sector. If all these shortcomings are realized within the public health care system, the DA would support the PMB. And just to note, the DA does not support the NHR. Thank you. <clears throat> Honorable members, uh, I'm not sure. ICT, I did not want to disturb the member on the podium, but the, the echo or the sound that comes from something is not right. The, the sound is being disturbed when the member is on the podium. So please check. Sometimes you find that these TVs are not fully off, this whatever monitor, yeah. All right, we proceed now and call on the EFF, Honorable Chiro. Thank you, Chairperson. What brings us here today is yet another affirmation that the ANC government and its agents masquerading as political parties in this house will never care about the people of this country. Today is a firm reminder of the fact that when legislators of this house found an opportunity to legislate universal health care coverage in the form of supporting an EFF private member bill that was to see clinics opening 24 hours and seven days a week, they chose to rather reject this opportunity because of political jealousy and a deep disdain for our people who continue to stand in queues at 4 a.m. in the morning just to collect medication and vaccination for their infants and grandparents. It is a lie that this bill isn't financially feasible. The ANC government would rather spend healthcare money on doing programs set for them by Bill Gates than programs that will result in quality and accessible healthcare for our people. The ANC government is committed to buying salons for ministers' girlfriends with money meant to save lives of our people, like we saw with the Digital Vibes Cash Heist during a global pandemic. Unfortunately for the country, this bill wasn't going to benefit ANC thugs with tenders. It wasn't going to create an opening for an increased executive personnel. This bill was going to ensure that more nurses are employed, more doctors are employed, more community healthcare workers absorbed permanently, more EMS services are available, and an end to our people being turned back at 4 p.m. because a clinic, a place meant for healthcare and our well-being has office hours like it's an accounting firm in Senton. In Matimbo Clinic in Limpopo just last year, a woman gave birth on the pavement outside of the clinic in full view of passerby because it was closed and nurses were sleeping. This is a clinic that was initially meant to be open for 24 hours, but wasn't because a commitment to have a clinic function for 24 hours and seven days a week isn't the same as a legislative responsibility for the same purpose. Elina Maseko had the same catastrophic event happen outside Stanza Upabe Clinic in Mamilodi East. Another gave birth in a car outside Mapela Clinic in Mokopani just last year while waiting for the clinic to open. Hundreds of other women and their children die at the gates of healthcare facilities because of ANC promises and commitments that never manifest in this house doing their legislative duties to usher access to our most destitute communities and especially 
the women of this country utilize healthcare services the most. Today, the ANC government wants to tell us about committing to opening clinics for 24-7. And yet the very same people reject legislating the very same commitment. Our people won't be assisted by mere commitments that can't be reflected on paper as law. In 1994, the ANC committed to ushering free education. And almost 30 years later, it is still not a reality. Our people need laws that will protect their rights not fleeting promises and commitments that never become a reality. The rejection of this bill is indeed a form of gender-based violence and ignoring our rights to health care. It is treacherous that in the year 2022, the EFF has to teach a supposed liberation party that our people need health care facilities that open for 24-7. Rejection of this bill subsequently means accepting the status quo. The poor, once again, I left out in tiny exceptions in bills such as the NHI, whilst a meaningful bill like the National Health Amendment Bill surprisingly reminds people in this room that the country has money issues. They don't remember that we have money issues when they steal our money. They don't remember that we have money issues when SAPRA donates to America for health projects they are not recognized for. They don't remember that we have money issues when they discard expired vaccines bought with our money because they fail to educate our people of the importance of vaccination they don't remember that we have money issues when they outsource our health care to the private sector through the NHI. They remember that we have money issues when we want our people to be able to go to the clinic at 2 a.m. because they got sick at 2 a.m. Prevention, primary health care and education will forever remain a myth in this country so long as a poor person has to wait for the weekend to pass in order to be assisted in our clinics. This bill seeks to ensure medical intervention at the point Thank of you, need for Honorable our people. Thank you, Shira. Your time has expired. Thank you. The IFP. Oh, Ma'am Tlengwa, just before you proceed, why are you rising, Honorable Chair, Tlengwa? I wanted to check whether it's parliamentary for Member Chiro to start her speech without greeting the president of her organization. Honorable Member, that's not a point of order. That's not a point of order. I'm funny way now. I'm funny way now. We are Papa. We are Papa. Please. I will deal with everything that is being raised. Please stop. Mam Khangwa, it's Ubangelab. Thank you, Honorable House Chairperson. The COVID 19 pandemic unenabled brought the global society in a standstill and forever change the way we view access to health care. The pandemic also tragically, thank you. The pandemic also tragically had a much greater impact in the poorest in our society. According to the World Bank, extreme poverty increased in all countries in 2020. And it is expected that COVID-19 induced extremely poverty is set to increase by 1.3 percentage points in Sahara African countries alone. It is again this backdrop that we should new 
view the National Health Amendment Bill, which proposed to amend the National Health Act to provide that public health care clinic must operate, provide health service for 24 hours a day and seven days a week. The reality is that the direction economic, <clears throat> the direct economic state of our country must inform our preparation of the bill. The fact that no costing model was provided makes this proposal as noble as it is not feasible. With an expected GDP growth rate of only 1.8% over the next three years and a government debt burden of over 4.3 million trillion, this proposal will have a great financial implication. This reality, however, should not mask the urgent need of government to ensure a public health facility to facility do need serve the people. Corruption and fraud with this sector must be found with extremely urgency. Reparation on the national health insurance bill should also not be used to mask the urgent need to attend maintenance and public health care facilities. The IFP has been vocal about the alarming delay in repair work of Charlotte McClake Hospital, and it seems that this delay has been further escalated by report of corruption. Access to the health care okay. must be... Mampiangwa, honorable member, your time is up. Thank you, Chairperson. The IFP accept the report. Thank you. FF Plus. Geachte voorzitter, um, dit is een ding om een bestaande wetgeving te veranderen, al is het net met een klein sinnetje op een voorkie. Maar die uitvoering daarvan kan, zoals in het huidige geval van Zuid-Afrika als openbare gezondheidszorg, een baie, baie groot uitdaging raak. Het is baie makkelijk om die woorde tot die nationale gezondheidswet te voeg wat opdracht gee dat klinieke wat hier die staat bevonds word dienste moet lever 24 uur per dag, 7 dagen per week. Het is baie makkelijk, maar het gaan nie gebeur nie. De minister het reeds in een geschreven antwoord aan mij de afgelopen tijd aangeduid dat Zuid-Afrika thans met 10.831 vakante posten zit voor verpleegsters in 1339 vakante posten voor dokters. Met die portofiele komitees besoeken gedurende die, die nationale gezondheidsverzekering um, verwoorde aan landelijke gebieden die afgelopen tijd, waar klinieken uiterst belangrijke rol speel in hierdie ver afgeleerde gebieden. Het het toch doorgekom en was het duidelijk geweest dat die tekort aan dokters, verpleegsters, medicijne toerusting en die dagelijkse infrastructuur soos kracht en water ver tekort schiet en dat patiënten verdaan in moet loop van hulle huise af om bij hierdie klinieke uit te komen, net om daar te komen en om niet gehelp te kan word en weens al die tekorte wat ik zo so pas genoem het. Daarom kan die wetgeving veranderd worden, maar die vraag is hoe gaan die specifieke wetgeving dan tot uitvoering gebracht word? Dit kan niet, dit gaan niet, en het gaan glad niet gebeur nie en onder die huidige omstandigheden gaan het bloot net een onbegonnen taak dus om uit te voeren. En tussen voorzitter, moors hierdie regering sy tyd en ons belastingbetalers geld 
met die nationale gezondheidsverzekering en geen nie aandag in, in kritieke infrastructure wat reeds in die gestoord het nie. Die 8 miljard wat uit van jaar sy gezondheidsbegroting aan die NGV gespandeer word, kon eerder gespandeer gewees het om die openbare gezondheid infrastructuur op te gradeer, om kindiges aan te stel, die vakante poste van dokters en verpleegsters te vol, en vir die uitwissing van wanbestuur, wanadministratie en wankorruptie. Geachte voorzitter, alhoewel die vrys van plus hierdie verslag ondersteun, kan ons nie hierdie wijzigang aan de nationale gezondheidswet ondersteun. Ek dankie. Dankie. De ACDP. Thank you, Chair. Honorable Chair, we firstly wish to recognize the work of Dr. Tembekwayo to bring this bill before the committee. We, however, support the report by the committee. The ACDP notes the important issue of access to health care and the expansion of health care services at the primary care level that the bill seeks to address. Primary health care facilities such as day hospitals or clinics are at the forefront of health care and disease management. The quality of health care is greatly impacted by the long waiting hours at these facilities, the shortage of staff, the lack of security, and the lack of appropriate infrastructure to ensure the comfort and safety of patients, especially the elderly and those suffering from illness. To change this, there are two critical elements that must be addressed. The ability of the state to perform and execute what is needed and the environmental readiness to facilitate the change of extending service hours. It is evident that the biggest hurdle to transformative and quality healthcare is the deficiencies of the state. This is not primarily a lack of funding or even on the ground capacity, but that the state insists on controlling the sector and dictating to communities concerning their health care. The key reason we do not turn the money invested into healthcare by the taxpayer into healthcare outcomes is the state's desire to control healthcare. We cannot constantly be saying we don't have money to open clinics when communities need them or pretend that funding does not matter. The state needs to dissolve power to communities to determine how their needs are best served and when they want clinics open. We want to see a model, especially in rural communities or areas with high population that reduces pressure on the system. What is needed to make the shift possible and thereby improve services and access to quality health care is what requires a further deep think and consultation before legislation that extends service hours can be developed and implemented. This legislation needs to form part of a fundamental reform of the health care system and no um, Honorable Jacobs, we do not support the NHI. As long as the state dictates healthcare centrally, it will demonstrate its inability to create a conducive environment to pursue improvements and transformative healthcare services that will improve South Africans' experiences at healthcare facilities. Thus, we conclude with the committee that the bill is not implementable or desirable in the current circumstances, but would welcome working with Dr. Tembekwayo um, and the whole community to create a community-led healthcare. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. The UDM? No declaration, Chair. Thank you. ATM? 
good nfp i thank you very much uh, house chairperson uh, the national freedom party notes the report that is tabled here today and allow us to express our concern about a whole lot of matters pertaining to this particular chairperson i think it is common knowledge that people in this country all over the world get ill at any time of the day or night and that as human beings we ought to have services available to them when they do take ill i want to give an example of mohammed khan from durban who got ill on a very wet and rainy saturday could not get an ambulance the facilities were not available and indeed two days later he died in hospital all because there was a delay in not having facilities available now is it okay or acceptable chairperson that when somebody takes ill on a weekend or after hours they must then wait for a monday to receive attention medical attention is it not the responsibility of the state to provide quality healthcare 24 hours a day 7 days a week yes indeed we will raise concern about whether we have the financial resources and the capacity to deal with it but 28 years later house chairperson we think that something ought to have been done in order to address the challenges many of our people face let me give you the case of lambert's bay there's not even a daycare hospital there chairperson and people have to rely on going 10 20 30 kilometers away no ambulance services available many people are dying as a result of this now an initiative of uh, of this must be welcomed while we understand that we may not have the necessary resources currently the question then we need to ask how will we be able to introduce universal healthcare in south africa if the issue of financial resources and the capacity is always going to be the one in question i think the time has come when we need to take more seriously the lives of our people whether they are rich or poor black or white and provide a more quality healthcare service in the country thank you thank you honorable member the aic thank you honorable chair <clears throat> the progress the progressive realization of the right of access to primary healthcare in our view can constitutionally be achieved in a phased manner subject to available resources the constitution itself delineates this this bill was effectively going to have huge implications for the balance sheet of the department of health we must remind members honorable chair that private bills bearing financial and policy implications must be carefully studied such bills must consider existing policy framework and and the strategic objectives of government departments while the issue of opening clinics 24 hours is not an important it must be aligned to other ancillary considerations in place in this regard It is common knowledge that the NHI is on the pilot phase and will likely cover this aspect. We therefore do not share the sentiment that the rejection of this bill is inconsistent with primary health care. We know 
that it may be tempting to sponsor private bills with the view to achieving certain political gains. But this must be informed by empirical evidence. We then, Honorable Chair, support this uh, report. Thank you. Thank you. Cope. PAC. Al Jama. ANC. Okay. Thank you, Chairperson. I'll say amen and more. Thank you very much from the DA. Uh, Chairperson, we thank the members of the political parties who came to give their views. And uh, we also want to thank those who are supporting this report. We do understand that there is an urgency for our people to be able to receive healthcare wherever it is needed. But we also need to understand that there are different tiers of healthcare just to talk to what uh, uh, Honorable Sheikh Imam was speaking about. There is a situation where somebody needs emergency medical care, then we have facilities for that type of care. It is not a primary healthcare challenge for you then having to access an, a clinic at that point in time. You go to the relevant hospital, which should either be a district hospital, a regional hospital, or a tertiary hospital for that matter. As you are then referred up the chain according to the challenge, health challenge which you are experiencing. We must also be reminded that this bill, at this point in time, the report by the ANC says that it is not desirable, and by the committee, at, we've had intense deliberations, and it was a decision of the committee that it is not desirable at this time. Notwithstanding the fact that we know that our people do need the access to the health care, um, as put by the honorable member of, of the EFF wanting to portray the ANC as being an organization that does not want people to have access to the health care. It is through the systems which we have in place where our people know where they're able to access health care that we would want people to understand that due to the nature of the illness which you present with at that point in time, you are to access the health care that is provided for you. Thank you very much, Chairperson. The ANC stands with that report. Thank you, uh, Honorable Member. The Chief Whip of the Majority Party, may I recognize you? Thank you, Chairperson. I move that the report be adopted. Thank you. The motion is that the report be adopted. Are there any objections? House Chairperson, please note that the DA supports this bill as long as the caveats mentioned by. Uh, oh, no, Honourable don't go Weber. there. Please don't go there. I heard you. You okay. support. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I need those who are going to object. None. Thank you very much. Then the report is agreed to. Chairperson, please note the objection of the EFF. Okay. You are, 
Your objection is noted, Honorable Chiro, but the report is agreed to. Order, Honorable Members. The Secretary will now read the second order. Second reading, National Health Amendment Bill. As there is no speaker's list, I will now put the question. Are there any objections to the bill not being read a second time as recommended by the committee? Thank you very much. Do I have uh, somebody from there, Anastasia? Who's that? Yes, Ms. Yako, you want to speak? Yes, please note the objection of the EFF. Thank you very much. The bill is therefore not read a second time. Thank you very much. Will you please read the third order? Consideration of report of Portfolio Committee on Cooperative Governance and Transitional Affairs on Disaster Management Amendment Bill. Thank you. I will now recognize the Honorable Casa from the virtual platform to introduce the report on the bill. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chairperson, uh, Honorable Members. <clears throat> The Portfolio Committee on Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs has convened several meetings to receive briefings and deliberate on a proposed disaster management amendment bill. This was a private member's bill sponsored by Dr. P.J. Hunewald of the Freedom Front Plus. The bill aimed to constrain the perceived power of the executive in relation to the duration of a state of disaster by means of affording parliament, provincial legislatures, and municipal councils. The exclusive power to extend the duration of national, provincial, and local state of disaster, respectively as well as allow for the legislatures to exercise greater oversight in respect of the management of disasters. The Portfolio Committee resolved to invite public comment on the proposed bill before deciding on its motion of desirability. A call for submissions was opened from 19 July to the 26th of October of August 2021 to afford interested persons and institutions a period of at least three weeks to comment on the proposed legislation. Visual public hearings were also convened to receive oral inputs on the written submissions as some stakeholders had explicitly indicated a preference to meet with the committee and discuss their proposals with a view to ensuring a proper understanding of the objective and the intent of these proposals. 
the committee duly complied with these considerations, while the majority of the stakeholders and a minority of the committee members saw a need for the proposed amendments to the Disaster Management Act, the majority of committee members did not agree with the desirability of the proposed bill. This disagreement was based mainly on the view that the current accountability and oversight mechanisms provided in the Constitution are adequate to address the gaps identified in the bill. Furthermore, allowing the legislatures to encroach on executive functions, including the declaration and extension of state of disaster and the making of regulations pursuant to such declaration would amount to a violation of the principle of separation of powers between the arms of state. As a matter of fact, Parliament has delegated regulation-making powers to the executive. However, the Portfolio Committee wishes to thank Dr. Hronewald for the extensive work involved in drafting and introducing the private member's bill and assure him that his efforts were not fruitless and that the inputs of stakeholders were not in vain, as they contribute meaningfully and generate more debate around the declaration of state of disaster and the regulation made under it. Such debate is encouraged as it may promote reasonableness and rationality in the management of disaster. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Honorable Kassa, I will now recognize political parties wishing to make a declaration, the DA. There we go, this is my first time here. Chairperson, the report before us is not just about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's about the abuse of power under the guise of necessity and what Parliament can do to stop it. The majority of public submissions received by the Portfolio Committee were in favour of subjecting government power under a state of disaster to more constraints and amending the Act. The excuses offered by the Minister and officials as to why this cannot happen don't make sense. The ANC has clearly not learned the lessons of COVID-19. They are still in denial about the harm done to the people of South Africa by the COVID-19 lockdown. Many of the jobs that were lost, the businesses that weren't reopened, the setbacks in teaching and learning weren't a matter of necessity. That was because of incompetence of decision makers, because the people in power didn't want to listen or learn and because they didn't care to explain the decisions to the public. Just how government used the Disaster Management Act to override Parliament's lawmaking function and its oversight function was not foreseen by Parliament when this Act was passed 20 years ago. 
the Disaster Management Amendment Bill is a sincere attempt to fix this defect in our law, and it accords with the DA's case in the Supreme Court of Appeal against Section 27 of the Act. Consider the anomaly in our law, Chairperson, between disasters and emergencies. Both the State of Emergency Act and the Disaster Management Act grant government extraordinary powers, but only the State of Emergency Act puts parliamentary brakes on the abuse of that extraordinary power. Had an emergency been declared in response to COVID-19, then the power of government would have been subject to three important steps. First, the declaration would have been tabled in Parliament. This would have allowed elected representatives of the people in full glare of the public and the media to debate the merits of the COVID-19 lockdown. But by the time that this House debated it for the first time, all of the decisions had already been made. The hardest lockdown was one of the hardest lockdowns in the world. Second, a state of emergency. In a state of emergency, Parliament would have had the power to amend and vote down the regulations. So instead of having to go to court to determine that the cigarette ban was based on faulty scientific evidence, we could have determined that in Parliament. Here, in Parliament, and with more scrutiny than was applied behind the closed doors of the so-called COVID Command Council. And that also, that also applies to many of the other irrational and unreasonable decisions. Finally, an extension of a state of emergency would have been subject to the concurrence of Parliament. If we were to pass this private member's bill, this amendment, then these procedural constraints will also apply to a disaster. And that is a good thing. We need that. The argument that such restrictions would constrain government's ability to deal with the disaster is simply not accurate. Think of the measures that government could have taken that don't require emergency powers. Procuring the COVID vaccine, keeping drunk drivers off the roads by policing and out of the emergency rooms, using PR agencies to convince the public about the efficacy of the vaccine instead of lining the pockets of the health minister. These don't require emergency powers. These don't require extraordinary powers. Also think of those measures that do require extraordinary powers, such as the mask mandate. That could have been debated in this parliament in a matter of weeks and reviewed on a monthly basis. The truth, Chairperson, is that the government's handling of COVID-19 was worse because they had too much power. They had too much power. And the same is going to be true of the next disaster. So by quashing this amendment bill to the Disaster Management Act, as this report speaks to do, the ANC confirm that they have learned nothing and that they see nothing beyond their own command and control. It will now be up to the courts to do what Parliament has failed to do and to bring the law in line with the Constitution. The DA does not support this bill. I thank you. Thank you. The EFF. Uh, Chairperson, our Constitution and the laws that spring from it, imperfect as they are, must be changed when there is a view based on empirical evidence that these laws have failed society. What we cannot afford to do is to change laws 
on the basis of incompetence of the current uh, in power. Because those in power today may not be in power tomorrow. The frustration of the member of the Freedom Front Plus, which led to him initiating this private member's bill, emanates from gross incompetence of the present government in dealing with the coronavirus. The member alleges that the powers that the Disaster Management Act granted to the cabinet member responsible for the administration of the act were draconian and left parliament with little room to to influence the, the response. While we may disagree that the handling of the pandemic by the ruling party may was abysmal, we do not agree that this is because of the powers of the laws given to the cabinet member. It is the incompetence of the, of the government and not the undesirability of the law that led to, to, the, to the mess that we are in today as a result of the of corona pandemic. The act allows the minister to take a number of decisions and these decisions are reviewable in court. It is not the act that forced the cabinet to, to ban the sale of hot foods, for instance, when they, when they first published their disaster management regulations. It is the foolishness of those who publish, who publish these regulations that, these, this, that made them link that's the spread of the virus to the sale of hot foods or the part or particular pieces of clothing. It is not the act that forced the, the government to close off many industries while not taking measures to shield these industries from the negative effects of these closures. It is the foolishness and the short-sightedness of, of, of those who lead. We cannot over-legislate the conduct of, of the executive. We can review the decisions they make. They make. We cannot legislate out foolishness and legislate in wisdom. It is impossible to do so. Lastly, Chair, the architecture of our constitution, constitutional democracy makes distinction between functions of the executive and those of the legislature. And the legislature must initiate legislation and hold the executive to account but we cannot be responsible for the for the for taking executive decisions in parliament as the bill would have asked us to do so this remains the territory of the executive ours is to hold them to account call out their foolishness and if needs be review unlawfulness of of decisions in court we therefore are in full support of the committee's recommendation not to go ahead with this bill. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. The IFP. Honorable um, Chairperson, it is undisputed that the COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating impact on our economy and our daily lives. Facing the third year of this pandemic, we must ask ourselves whether our laws, which were not necessarily drafted to provide checks and balances for such an unprecedented event, is aligned with our constitutional democracy. From the outset, the IFP wishes to state that it supported the objectives of the Disaster Management Amendment Bill, which proposes to amend the Disaster Management Act. The bill aimed 
aim to amend the duration of a state of disaster and provide that only the National Assembly, a provincial legislature, or municipal council may resolve to extend the declaration of a national, provincial, or local state of disaster. We strongly submit that although it is a critical, it is critical rather, that the executive be placed in a position to act swiftly in such unprecedented events, parliament must be placed in a position to adequately provide oversight in terms of the act. This is not currently the case. Currently, the minister may, in terms of section 27 of the act, extend the national state of disaster one month at a time after the initial three months. This power can be exercised indefinitely by the minister without any input from parliament. This is not aligned with our constitutional democracy, which requires adequate checks and balances on the executive. We do not believe that the bill would have encroached on the minister's role at all. The bill provided a necessary draft, which could have been reworked by the committee to strengthen the act. Not all provisions of the bill had to be accepted as is. For instance, the percentage of supporting votes required for further extensions could have been further deliberated on and reworked. However, the rejection of the deliberate of the bill in its entirety is not justified. The committee was given an, a unique opportunity to strengthen the act and provide adequate checks and balances on executive power. The RFP also shares the sentiment that the act never envisioned to regulate an event of the scale and nature. Our laws are not set in stone and must reflect the, the reality of our circumstances. If we do not grab this opportunity and strengthen our laws, we may risk abuse of power at the expense of the people of South Africa. The IFP does not accept the portfolio committee's report and rejection of the bill. Thank you, Chairperson. The FF Plus. Honorable Chair, Section 92.2 of the Constitution determines that the Cabinet members are individually and collectively accountable to Parliament. That's a constitutional obligation. But that doesn't mean that Parliament can sit backwards and wait for the executive to be accountable. No. The constitutional obligation is on this House to ensure that the executive is accountable to Parliament. The former Speaker, the Honorable Tandy Mudise, at the Zondo Commission in terms of state capture, apologized to the people of South Africa for the fact that Parliament did not hold the executive accountable. She apologized. Now, Chairperson, when it comes to the disaster management bill, which I proposed in this House, at the committee, at the procedure where we had to vote, as far as the desirability is concerned, the committee majority, the ANC, decided to say no. There is no desirability for such a bill. It means that the ANC says that we don't have the desire to hold the executive accountable. You didn't even read the bill. This bill proposed 
that when it comes to the disaster, that the minister is accountable to parliament in the same way as you have a state of emergency. And go and do your homework. Don't come and sit here and shouting and you don't know what it is about. Go and do your homework and you will find that worldwide, other countries don't even have an act as far as disasters are concerned. They only have an emergency act. And that was the way it was acted. I want to put it quite clearly. The Freedom Front Plus and those who supported this bill wanted to fulfill their constitutional obligation. The ANC, you are failing the people of South Africa again and again and again. I thank you. Thank you. You know what? That is real shouting that you are doing. The decorum of this house is not upheld when you do that. Please. You can handle, but the shouting, no. You are out of order. ACDP. Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, the ACDP, like all other parties, initially supported the hard COVID-19 lockdown regulations for the reasons given, namely to flatten the curve and enable public health care facilities to prepare for the expected COVID-19 pandemic. We all thought it would be short-lived, understanding the delicate balance to be struck between saving lives and livelihoods. However, it soon became apparent that many irrational regulations were having a devastating impact on the economy, resulting in tens of thousands of businesses closing with millions losing their jobs. Now, beside the many irrational lockdown regulations, such, such as that as to whether roast chicken could be sold, what types of clothes and shoes could be bought, where you could exercise, worship, even pray. There was also a flagrant disregard for the rights of citizens. The worst possible abuse occurred early in the lockdown with the tragic death of Mr. Collins Causa at the hands of security officials. It is very sad that High Court Judge Fabricius had to restate what it should have been obvious that every citizen is protected by the Bill of Rights. But he went further to find that there was a complete lack of trust between government on the one hand and society on the other during the lockdown. This is deeply disturbing. Yet let Parliament as the elected representatives had no say over the contents of the draconian disaster management regulations or the monthly extensions of the state of disaster for more than two years. Now, Dr. Krinovald's proposed amendment sought to restrict the minister's powers and make her accountable to Parliament. This is eminently reasonable and supported by the ACD. The argument about the separation of powers is deeply flawed. In a Section 37 state of emergency, which is very similar to what was practically experienced under the state of disaster, Parliament's position, permission must be sought for any extension. And there's no reason why Parliament should not similarly have a say on the extension of the state of disaster. A court may also decide on the declaration extension or any legislation enacted or any other action taken in consequence of a state of this emergency. Yet, astonishingly, government lawyers in the Collins Cosa case had the audacity to argue that a court had no function in that matter or ought not even to hear a case under a state of disaster. Thankfully, this argument was given short shrift by the judge, but it does illustrate an arrogant attitude that prevailed at that time. In many cases, traumatized citizens were even told 
by municipal and traffic police that they had no rights under lockdown regulations. More than 350,000 citizens were arrested for minor breaches and where they paid admission of guilt fines now have criminal records. The ACDP commends Dr. Grunewald in this bill and hence it will not support the report. I thank you. Thank you. The UDM. UDM, ATM, good. Thank you, House NF Chair. House Chair, can you hear me? Yes, Honorable Hyron, you may proceed. Thank you so much, House Chair. Um, House Chair, disasters by nature are unpredictable and pose existential and unforeseen challenges. Whether they are induced by a pandemic, climate change, or civil unrest, mitigating human suffering and loss requires agility from those in charge of managing the response. Across the world, from Australia to Canada, the COVID uh, pandemic has seen legislators tailoring disaster regulations with a view to better managing future calamities. South Africa is no exception. Here, as in many other territories, the impact of unprecedented lockdowns was economically disastrous. Here is elsewhere, many citizens held strong views about the appropriateness of some of the regulations, not least due to the manner in which, while curtailing most of our civil and economic liberties, they seem to enable the corrupt to flourish. We don't all need to agree on everything, but it's best not to have to conduct our disagreements on the manner of our response and recovery while in the teeth of a disaster. We therefore do our best to lay down some robust frameworks in advance, suitable to managing a broad swath of eventualities, because who can tell what the nature of the next disaster will be? What we do know is that we don't want government red tape and excessive consultation to slow down the ability of the state at, its, at all its levels to respond in a coordinated fashion. We don't want jurisdictional protocols to inhibit emergency operations. And we don't want to add another layer of misfortune to disasters by creating conducive conditions for crooks. The three most recent South African disasters, COVID, last, year's July, last July's attempted insurrection, and the recent flooding in KwaZulu-Natal, demonstrated that there's ample room for improvement in the Disaster Management Act. We may disagree as politicians what steps to take when faced with a tsunami, a new virus, or more social unrest. What we should all agree in advance is that our response is unlikely to be perfect because disasters have a way of confounding order and usual logic. And we should agree that our response must evolve as we learn and, as, and we have just learned from, uh, from COVID. In this context, uh, House Chair Good accepts that our disaster management legislation needs to be re-examined frequently so that we can always be as responsive as we can achieve and act informed by contemporary experience and knowledge. Uh, putting better strategic contingencies plans in place, we can limit the negative impacts of the next disaster we face. What we cannot support are knee-jerk populist reactions to the implementation of a national response to an unprecedented event. In the context of the world's response to COVID-19, South Africa's response was neither excessive nor unusual. Errors were made here and, and abroad, but these cannot be the basis for the amendment proposed. The amendments do not enhance our response to disasters. They intend to in inhibit our response. Thank you. Thank you. NFP. 
Any member of the NFP? AIC? Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. The disaster management bill that was introduced by Honorable Khumnobal will not be supported by the AIC. Our opposition is not grounded on the argument of separation of powers, which the committee raises in its report. We don't agree that the doctrine of separation of powers is implicated. Still, Parliament's oversight function is not necessary, at least not on the terms articulated in the bill. We argue that executive conduct, which goes beyond the strictures of the Disaster Management Act, can be challenged on the basis of rationality. In other words, the courts will have to determine whether there is a rational connection between the decision to extend the duration of a state of disaster and a legitimate government purpose. That choice does not involve a separation of powers analysis. On the merits, we don't believe that the role of parliament will be necessary to check executive actions as there are sufficient guarantees that already exist to to foolproof this process. For instance, parliament has the section 156 powers to summon anyone before it. The Minister of Culture equally accounts to the Portfolio Committee on Cooperative Governance and the President may from time to time be called upon to respond to questions in Parliament. Therefore, the rationality requirement is adequate, is adequate to the duration of the state of disaster. We therefore, Honorable Chairperson, support the report, but on different grounds. I thank you. Thank you. The uh, COPE, PAC, Aljama, the ANC. Is the member? Oh, Honorable Mpumza, yes. Proceed. Masbolele, Mshalanga Pambele, Nendwe, who is on TED. Honorable Chair, the African National Congress reaffirms its support for the National Disaster Management Act 57 of 2002, which provides for an integrated, coordinated disaster management policy that focuses on prevention, reduction of disaster, reduction of disaster, and mitigating of severity of disasters, emergency preparedness, rapid and effective response to disasters, as well as post-disaster recovery. And indeed, Honorable Chair, the act in its current form does invoke the necessary agility uh, from the state in order to act promptly to disasters. We locate the importance and the relevance of this act in the context of the principles of cooperative governance and 
intergovernmental relations outlined by Section 41, Substance 1 of the Constitution, wherein provisions or provision is made that all spheres of government and organ of state within each sphere must preserve peace, national unity, and indivisibility of the Republic, as well as search for the well-being of the people of the Republic. So these fundamental principles outlined in the Constitution serve as a technical and a moral compass against which to measure the Disaster Management Act. During the COVID-19 global pandemic, the Disaster Management Act provided a framework for government's well-coordinated, streamlined, and cogent response to the challenges and realities presented by the virus, which was spreading rapidly and having a negative socioeconomic impact on the rest of society. Through the mechanisms provided by the Disaster Management Act, the state was able to control the spread of virus and saved lives, saved millions of lives and softened the economic blows on the most vulnerable section of society. The state in all its spheres through the disaster management centers was able to streamline resources, eliminated silos and worked in a coordinated approach in the true spirit of cooperative governance. During the pandemic, the challenges of poverty, unemployment and inequality that we have committed to eradicate through the National Development Plan were even more pronounced. One of the lessons that we have drawn from the COVID-19 pandemic is that in situations of disaster and crisis, the poor and the vulnerable sections of society need protection from the excesses of the market. The global trend which can also be observed in society that during pandemic, while the poor and the working class sections of society lost their jobs and fell into poverty. The wealthy classes amassed more wealth. The developmental state has a responsibility to protect the foreign perception of society, and this must inform its approach during the disaster management. The approach to disaster management intended in the constitution and subsequent to the act is that all sections of society, whether market or non-market stakeholders, towards addressing the plight of those negatively affected. For this to succeed, the state must ensure a wider consultation. The act in its current form provides for the establishment of advisory forms, forums at national, provincial and municipal levels, which may be drawn from different stakeholders of society, including organized business, labor, agriculture, traditional leaders, insurance industry, religious and welfare organizations. We call on these forums to broaden their work on a stakeholder consultation to ensure that all critical sectors are engaged and taken on board during the disaster management. Honorable Chair, Parliament must adopt a heightened oversight approach to ensure that our intervention during disaster produce the desired outcomes and furthermore ensure that there is accountability in the utilization of public funds. We ensure that government responds to audit opinions and funds are recovered wherever they have been mismanaged. Lastly, Chair, the ANC sends its heartfelt condolences to those who have lost their families friends and loved ones 
in the recent floods in KZN. We are encouraged, however, by the fact that the state has been able to mobilize different sectors of, sectors of society to ensure that all hands are on deck in rebuilding the lives of those communities. Our understanding is that uh, practical competency begins at the polls and at the execution level. Chair, as the ANC, we support the report and its recommendations. I thank you. Thank you. Let me now recognize the Chief Whip of the Majority Party. Chairperson, on behalf of the Chief Whip of the Majority Party, I move that the report be adopted. Are there any objections to the report being adopted? Uh, yes, thank you, House Chair. Uh, Please note that the DA does not support this report. Thank you. Chairperson. Yes, Honorable Vessels. Please note the objection of the FF Plus. Thank you. Chairperson. Yes, Honorable uh, Yako. Thank you. Please note that the EFF does not support this bill. Thank you. Chairperson. But you're dealing with the report. Am I correct, Honorable Iago? You are correct. We support the okay. report. We reject the bill. Okay. It's fine. The person, Thank you. The person, please note the ACDP. Honorable Swart, yes. Please note the ACDP does not support the report. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, the, 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 the objections have been noted and the report is agreed to. I will now call the secretary to read the fourth order. Second reading, disaster management amendment bill. Honorable members, as there are no speakers list, I will now put the question. Are there any objections to the bill not being read a second time as recommended by the committee? Chairperson. Yes, Honorable Vessels. Chairperson, uh, we call for a division. Thank uh, Yes, the division may be called. You are correct. Uh, I, will, I will now give the House the five minutes for the bells to be rung. Thank you.
Recording stopped. Recording in progress. Honorable members. Order, honorable members. <clears throat> the speaker has determined that in accordance with the rules, a manual voting uh, procedure will be used for this division. Firstly, in establishing the quorum, I just want our secretariat to make sure that the numbers that they have uh, is that we get from all the parties that will be voting are the same numbers that are confirmed by ICT. I would request the table to confirm that we have a requisite number. Do we have? Yes, the number, we have a requisite number in, uh, in the chamber and also on the virtual platform to take this decision. Party whips will be then given an opportunity to confirm their num the number of their members present and indicate if they vote for or against the question. A member who wishes to abstain or vote against the party or vote may do so by informing the chair. 
Now, having confirmed that we have a requisite quorum, I will now proceed, honorable members. The question before the House is the Disaster Management Amendment Bill not be read a second time. Voting will now commence. The doors of the chamber are locked and those on the virtual platform that are not in yet will not be allowed uh, to be to enter the virtual platform until we have concluded with the voting. Um, Whips could co uh, confirm the number of their members present in the chamber and the virtual platform and indicate if they vote for or against the question. I will start with the ANC. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson of the House. The ANC is 137 on the virtual platform, 18 in the Good Hope Chamber. So it's the total of 155. The ANC is in support of not is in support of not the bill being read for the second time. So we are. We so are you are voting yes. Yes, we are. Thank yes. you. Yeah. <laughs> the DA. Uh, thank you, Auschi. the DA has got 46 members online, and we've got 16 members present in the House, totaling 60. The DA objects, in other words, is against uh, the second reading not being read, and to be very clear, we are in favor of the... Of Don't the confuse me. <laughs> Don't try and confuse me. You are voting no. Thank you. The EFF. Thank you, House Chair. Um, the EFF um, is in support of the bill not being read a second time. The amendment Thank bill. you. Uh, did, did I get the number, please? From the EFF? We are 24 on the virtual platform. Thank you very much. Uh, IFP. Honorable House Chairperson, IFP four on the virtual platform one in the House voting no. Thank you. FF plus. Thank you, Chairperson. We are six on the virtual platform and one in the House. That's a total of seven voting against. Thank you. ACDP? Thank you, House Chair. The ACDP has three on the virtual platform and we vote against the question. Thank you. Thank you. UDM? ATM? Good. House Chair, there's one of us on the platform and we vote um, yes. To the question. Thank you. 
NFP. Okay, AIC. Honorable Jafta, you have been here. Are you gone? Okay. Uh, Cope. PAC. Aljama. All these other parties, okay? I waited to hear any party saying we are here. Nobody's saying we are here. So, honorable members, is there any member that wishes to abstain or vote differently to their party? Thank you very much. The voting session is now closed. Is it correct? against you, must I doubt if it's correct. It's too high. Remember,
Honorable members, uh, you pardon us, you know, the manual way of working and uh, the issue of the abstentions. Remember, all those who did not respond, we take those as abstentions, neither yes or no. So that was what delayed. Thank you. Uh, honorable members, uh, we have six abstentions, those parties. We have uh, 60 no's, and then we have 196 yes. The question is accordingly to agreed to, and the bill will not be read a second time. Honorable House Chairperson, on a point of order. Okay, I'll come to you, Honorable Kengwa. Let me listen to this one. On a point of clarity, Madam Speaker, uh, we were voting um, against the yes, the borough, yes, that's and the we, sixty. Yeah, we were the, not the only ones. And yes, we were sixty in total. And no, you said forty-eight. So we were 60 on our own, and the Freedom Front voted against it and uh, other people. So 60 must be an incorrect number. The ACDP voted against it. I know. I thought it was 48, but I hear what you are yeah. saying, and I will allow them okay. to check. If it's right. possible, we will redo it. Okay. If it's possible. Uh, Honorable Khengwa. Um, thank you very much, Honourable Chairperson. If I may beg your indulgence, uh, when you put the question um, on the previous order, in so far as the report of the Portfolio Committee on COCTA, due to these technical glitches, as you may have heard, um, Honourable S.A. Butelis' declaration, if you could kindly please record the objection of the IFP to that order. It was a technical glitch on the member who was uh, meant to be on the platform, and we apologise in that regard. Thanks. To what is your request clearly? That you re record the objection of the IFP to that order. Which or oh, the order before yes. this one? Yes, ma'am. If you could. Uh, unfortunately, when we have passed the order, we don't go back. If it was something else, oh, I would oh, agree. Oh, Thank you. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> and. I am aware maybe the, the issue of a hybrid should be highly considered from you. And we have a member of the IFP in the house. Maybe that should have assisted if the message was sent. Uh, honorable uh, members, you are very correct. I can see what they've written here. Uh, the DA, there was 46 and plus 16, which is 60. And then we also have uh, another party that also, uh, yes. So uh, something went wrong with the calculations there and I'm not going to allow it to go that way. Uh, I believe that we are still locked in into the voting. And no, or wait, wait please don't, don't, don't disturb me. We are still uh, in, the, in the voting and I will really wish to urge you that we redo it, all member, all parties. Please, let's redo it because this is an obvious mistake that was done here. We cannot overlook it. <clears throat> uh, honorable members, 
I'll also try and write from my side. What you write at table staff is the members in the house and out and check whether they vote no or yes. If you can assist me, let's forget. The, the, the question is that uh, the bill not be read a second time. If you agree with that, you simply say yes. If you want it to be read a second time, like the proposal uh, of this, maybe to put it clearly, the FF plus, they will obviously say no, because that is the recommendation of the committee. I just want to clarify that so that we, we go smoothly. Thank you. Uh, honorable members, I'm going to start again with all the parties. Maybe they, and I don't believe that those that were, uh, had abstained will be here. That will show that we are inconsistent then. Chairperson. Chair. Yes, Honorable Langa. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Um, just checking on the numbers on the of the participants here, it looks like they are increasing, meaning we'll have more numbers than before when we initially started No, voting. we have not opened the, the, the voting yes, as yet. And but if ICT has done that, that is very wrong. Yes, the numbers are increasing now. They are. Yes. Can, okay. They, maybe they thought the meeting was over. Let us look into this now and say this is the beginning of the voting session to, to, to cut matters. And please, ICT, do not open anymore. Please, don't do that. Uh, we know how the rules work. We don't want to fight each other for, for the mistakes that you have done. Let's agree that now we are starting the voting session. And I will go straight to, don't worry, I will go straight to the parties to record, to record now. The ANC, please record and tell us how many members in outside. We will verify with the ICT whether you are voting yes or no. Don't come with another language, please. Let's speak this, the language that we all understand. Thank you, House Chair. The NC was 137, is 137 on the visual platform, 18 in the House. The total is 155. It votes in favor of the questions. Yes. Thank you. Yes, my honorable member. Please, let's do, let's be, yes. Mabarota, the DA has 46 members online, 16 in the House, which gives us a total of 60 members who vote no. Understood. We proceed now, the EFF. Thank you, House Chair. Um, the EFF has 29, 25 members on the virtual platform, and we vote yes for the bill not to be read a second time. Okay, thank you. Uh, the IFP. Honorable House Chairperson, the IFP has got five on the virtual platform, one in the house and voting no. Thank you. Members, please be quiet. We mustn't get this wrong again. This, this uh, secretariat here must be able to hear what is being said. Thank you, IFP. FF plus. Thank you, Chairperson. We are six on the virtual platform, one in the House, that's seven voting no. 
Thank you. ACDP? Um, House Chair, we earlier indicated three on the virtual platform voting no. We have a fourth member that is now joined, so we have got four members, so we're not sure how we should vote, but I am given an indication we are now four on the virtual platform voting no. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Thank we record that four. Thank you. The UGM did not participate. The ATM did not participate. Good. Uh, House Chairperson, there are now two of us on the virtual platform and we vote yes. Thank you. Yes, no, we agree to that. NFP? No, they did not. Ne? AIC, Babuch after the, was not here also. House Chair? Yes. I'm terribly sorry, but I've just been informed by my whip uh, sitting closest to the back that I've given you the incorrect number. The uh, amount of members in the house is actually 18 members. You so said 16. I said uh, 16. So that please, can be corrected I, because we can count. Yes, no I'm problem. I'm terribly sorry about that. So we 62 voting no. No, no and problem. I'm terribly sorry. No problem. That can be done. Uh, AIC no. COPE no. PAC no. Aljama no. So those numbers, honorable members, uh, ICT, please do not open for anybody else. We are now waiting for the results as the calculations are made.
these are the final numbers corrected, uh, checked with ICT, the risk correspondence on the members on the platform. We proceed now with abstentions, we have got seven. No's 78 and yes, 182. The question is accordingly agreed to and the bill will not be read a second time. Thank you. Uh, we are now on, the, the secretary will read the fifth order. Consideration of request for approval by parliament of amendment to the Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Material in terms of section 231, subsection two of constitution 1996. Thank you. I will now invite the Honorable Lucy Po to introduce the report. Thank you, Honorable House Chair, Honorable Members, um, and, and interested uh, parties in the proceedings of Parliament. On behalf of the Portfolio Committee on Mineral Resources and Energy, I hereby uh, table to this House the report on the amendments to the Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Material. <clears throat> the report in the main seeks to introduce before this house um, uh, a careful assessment that uh, has been made with regards to international uh, terrorism, especially where there's been a loss of innocent lives. And the threat of terrorism has not declined, but rather increased over the past years. And therefore, this necessitated the call to expand the scope of the Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Material, uh, in, in short, the CWPNM, a shortcoming of the original convention <clears throat> that was adopted in 1979 and, and, and came into effect in 1979. 87 is that its scope of application was limited to the three aspects, which is the physical protection of nuclear material, which is used for, for peaceful purposes. The second one is the criminalization of offenses. This includes, amongst others, the theft or robbery of nuclear material. And last and the third point is that uh, international cooperation uh, based on international cooperation, in the case of theft, robbery, or any other unlawful taking of nuclear material or credible threat thereof. The amendment of the convention seeks to fill the existing gap in the original convention by measuring the sources of new emerging threats and therefore uh, uh, map out a possible solution in the context of the threats in an internationalized or globalized world. And um, this also being uh, impacted or uh, uh, affected mostly by the new democratic processes, the spread of democratic processes, which amongst others is the question, is the matter of uh, freedom of movement, the macroeconomic policies which promote trade, 
as well as the the, uh, the unlimited consequences as a result of large-scale terrorism nuclear facilities. In other words, the use of nuclear material for energy generation and medical purposes dominates the international landscape. The concern, therefore, is that nuclear material used for peaceful purposes could at some point fall in the hands of the non-state actors or terrorist groups uh, who could do harm in society. Honorable Chair, the reason why the convention had to be amended uh, uh, is that it greatly strengthened the original convention by adding the following non-exhaustive new obligations, which is one, uh, broadens the scope of the, of the CP, CWPNM to also include physical protection requirements for nuclear facilities and nuclear material in domestic use, storage, and transport. It seeks also to expand cooperation between and among states regarding rapid measures to locate and recover stolen or smuggled nuclear material, mitigate any radiological consequences of sabotage, prevent and combat related offenses. It also seeks to provide for the sharing of information on potential and actual attacks on nuclear material and facilities and the provision for assistance if attacks should occur. Lastly, the amendment recognizes the right of all states to develop and apply nuclear energy for peaceful purposes in their legitimate interest in the potential uh, benefits um, for the, to be derived from the peaceful application of uh, nuclear. In addition to this new obligation, the amendment expands the list of offenses that member states are obligated to criminalize as well as specific provisions to bring to justice those who commit acts of nuclear theft or smuggling or even sabotage. This is very important in the context of South Africa where there is a growing concern in particular on, in, with regards to illegal mining activities, fuel theft and infrastructure vandalism in strategic centers of our economy. There has been wide uh, consultation um, in terms of the report received with Honorable other departments of interest. Your time has expired. Thank you. Thank uh, you, Thank you. I will now recognize parties that wish to make declarations. The DA. House Chairperson. The development and utilization of nuclear energy is one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century. It has greatly enhanced the ability of humanity to understand and shape the world and has had a significant impact on the development of technology and civilization. Since its initial exploitation about 80 years ago, nuclear technology <laughs> has always promised a brighter future, but it's a future that it hasn't always delivered on. Nonetheless, we use nuclear technology every single day in ways mm. many of us don't even realize. Honorable Chabangu, Honorable Chabangu, please, let's, let's mute. 
Just mute Honorable Makosini Chabagu, please. Uh, Can I proceed, Chair? Proceed. I see that your minutes were not stopped there. Uh, Chairperson, as I was saying, please. nonetheless, we use nuclear technology every single day in ways that many of us do not even realize. From microwave ovens to x-rays, from radiation treatments for cancer to nuclear power generation. The downside, however, are the threats of nuclear mishap, incidents such as Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima, issues of nuclear security, and then obviously environmental contamination. In 1979, the Convention on the Physical Protection of Nuclear Material was developed under the auspices of the International Atomic Energy Association, aimed at strengthening the security of nuclear materials during international transport. It is to this day the only legally binding international undertaking pertaining to the physical protection of nuclear material. Article 7 of the original convention obligates member states to ensure that offenses such as the possession, use, or disposal of nuclear material without authorization becomes punishable under, under member states' national law. South Africa signed that agreement in 1981, but they only ratified it in Parliament in 2007. Following concerns from the 9-11 attacks in 2001, that nuclear facilities might be targeted and that threats of nuclear terrorism were on the rise, there was a move to address the lacunas in the convention. So in 2005, the convention was amended by consensus amongst member states and various aspects were strengthened, including the requirement for increased security at nuclear facilities and the expansion of the scope of the convention to cover domestic use, storage and transportation of nuclear materials, all of which had previously been excluded. Now, although South Africa signed that amended convention in 2016, it was only presented to cabinet in September last year. And now more than six years later is being tabled in parliament some 17 years after all the member states, including South Africa, agreed on what was contained in that amended convention. This is far too long. Government, both the various government departments and the cabinet need to move more swiftly in bringing international treaties and conventions to this house for ratification. Our failure to do so in this case could have had severe ramifications in the purchase of nuclear materials from other countries including such items as fuel for our various nuclear reactors. South Africa must uphold and actively promote the ideal of a safe future for nuclear technology. We need to review our own legislation to ensure that we adhere to international obligations and that the full force of the law is brought against those who contravene the provisions of this convention. We must be responsible members of the global community by ensuring that nuclear technology is developed safely and in a manner that leaves no doubt of our commitment to securing our nuclear facilities, nuclear transport infrastructure, and any nuclear material that arrives on our shores or are stored or transported within our borders. The Democratic Alliance supports the ratification of this convention. Thank you. The EFF. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Chairperson, the Convention uh, on uh, Physical Protection of Nuclear Material was adopted in 1979. 
and seeks to provide protection against the injudicious uh, handling of nuclear material in order to prevent injuries and loss of life that may result from poor handling of nuclear material. South Africa ratified this convention in 2007, ensuring that our handling of our own nuclear material is on par with global standards. The amendment to the convention seeks to strengthen these measures on handling of and transportation of nuclear material to prevent waste leakages and to ensure safe storage. The reality, however, is that South Africa is, un is unable to implement any of these conventions. Let's take uh, the example of the Kuper nuclear power station, for instance. ESCOM reports that Kuper generates approximately 500 grams of low-level waste, 150 grams of intermediate-level waste, and 32 tons of high-level waste per year. Both low and intermediate level waste are transported from Kuper to a waste disposal site in Valput in the Northern Cape, where this waste is buried in the shallow eight meter deep trenches. The site was opened without any consultation in 1986 by the apartheid government, which made sure, which made sure it was located as far away as possible from where white people lived. The National Nuclear Regulator only consulted people living close to the site in 2003. In 1997, drums were found to have been leaking for several years, while radioactive dose limits were exceeded in 2012. The dangers posed by low and intermediate level waste are relatively small compared to the extreme dangers posed by high level waste. We cite this example uh, to demonstrate that South Africa is either incompetent in terms of handling its nuclear material, or there is no political and technical willingness to ensure that these are properly handled. Our approval of this convention is not going to change our need for internal capacity to manage a nuclear material. We further note that the convention as the only legally binding uh, treaty on uh, nuclear security should be supported and strengthened. It should furthermore clearly outline specific standards uh, for nuclear security, which is not the case uh, right currently. Despite this, we approve the amendment to the convention. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you. The IFP. IFP. Honorable Chairperson, it seems that uh, Honorable Msumang is having problems. May I come to the front or proceed from here? Thank you. Honor Thank you, Honorable Chair. Yes, proceed, uh, Professor. Uh, thank you, Honorable Chair. The purpose of the amendment to the Convention on the Physical Pro Protection of Nuclear Materials is, I quote, to achieve and maintain worldwide of effective physical protection of nuclear material and of nuclear facilities used for peaceful purposes to prevent and combat offenses relating to such material as facilities worldwide, as well as to facilitate cooperation among state parties to those ends, end of quote. When it comes to nuclear, South Africa is glowingly described by the Nobel Peace Prize winning organization, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons as a champion for a world without nuclear weapons, end of quote. 
We cannot therefore rest on our laurels when it comes to the use of nuclear materials for peaceful purposes, such as energy generation. As the IFP, we share the committee's concerns over the fact that this amendment came into force in May 2016, yet here we are six years later and South Africa has not ratified it, where we have made gains in international fora and are considered world leaders, we should be working to maintain such reputation. Further, it is widely known that nuclear materials and facilities, if not managed correctly, can be manipulated so as to inflict grievous harm upon the population. Therefore, this amendment is not only necessary, but welcomed. We note, I quote, the department um, has authorized 274 companies to trade nuclear material in the country and abroad, end of quote and further committed to providing inspectors to visit these companies on a quarterly basis. These measures were instituted, quote, to ensure the companies met the IAEA standards for the physical protection of nuclear material, unquote. The department stated that it a quote again, would complete, uh, would compile a report that illustrated the state of compliance of each nuclear company with the nuclear physical Thank you, Honorable um, Siman, your time is up. I thank you. Thank you. FF Plus. Achbarde Huisvoorzitter, Kerem Kragesede die ontstaan daarvan omstrede. Die meeste mense het die eerste maal daarvan gehoord hoe twee atoombom met die Japanese stede Hiroshima en Nagasaki vernietig het en daarmee ook die tweede wereldoorlog beëindig het. Behalwe dat oorlog skielik gevaarliker was, het die vreedzame moendlikhede verbeeldings aangegryp. As al daar die energie op een beheerde wijze vrijgesteld kon word, daar kon elektriciteit te goedkoop word om te meet. In Zuid-Afrika het ons voor in hierdie rij gestaan. Terwijl die kernmoendhede die land nie met die nodige inlichting vertrouw het nie, is oorspronkelijke werk by Pellendaba en Wellendaba, Wallendaba buiten Pretoria gedoen. Vreedsame en nie vreedsame gebruike van kernkracht is nooit te ver van mekaar nie. Zuid-Afrika kon bewys dat die Iran verreik, en kern, uh, verreik is en kernkracht vreedsaam gebruik is, maar met die oorgang van 1994 is uiteindelik herkend dat die land ook oor atoombom beskik het, wat het selfontwikkeling gebouw het. Oud-president de Klerk het wel kans gesien om eerloos oor te gee, maar nie om sulke wapens in die hande van sy opvolgers te laat nie. Of dalk was hy bang vir die gijselaarsituasie van die teenstanders uit eie geledere. Intussen is Koeberg, Zuid-Afrika sy enigste kernkrachtcentrale, voorvoltooing in 1982 succesvol dier die ANC's militaire vleel aangeval, terwyl Greenpeace in 2002 daan geslaag het om banere aan die gebouw te hang. In 2005 was daar die beruchte moer nie die aktor voorval, wat Kaapstad in die duister gelaat het. Nuclear facilities are clearly not invincible. At Kuberg, the high-grade nuclear waste is stored on-site, 
the same site violated in 1981 and 2002. The fact that spent nuclear waste remains hazardous for centuries is widely known. Maybe fewer people know that spent nuclear waste, leaving an electricity generating reactor, is more useful for building an atomic bomb than when it entered. What it means is that people with the requisite knowledge and skills who want to wreck a bomb will, for a number of centuries, not need to manufacture nuclear material. They will only have to steal what has been manufactured before. This is particularly relevant uh, a danger when people who had been trained in this field become alienated from the state or its government. It is therefore clear that this convention, which South Africa had already signed in 1981 for the first time, is essential. The amendments considered today extend protection to not only the materials as it is transported within and between countries, but also with the facilities itself. International cooperation in combating theft and misuse of nuclear material is also strengthened by the amendments. The Freiheitsfront Plus understand this here verslag. Baie dankie. Thank you. ACGP? Um, thank you, House Chair. The ACGP supports the approval of the amendment to the Convention of Protection on Physical Protection of Nuclear Material and we support this report. I thank you. Thank you. The UDM. We support the amendment, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you, ATM. Good. We support, Chairperson. Thank you, NFP. Not on the platform. AIC. Not on platform. COPE. PAC. Al-Jamal, the ANC. Thank you very much, uh, House Chair. The report on the amendment to the Convention on Physical Protection and Nuclear Material that the ANC fully supports seeks to dispel two dominant myths. The first myth is that the end of the Cold War between the USSR and the West marked the beginning of a peaceful international environment, thereby suggesting that fear as well as enmity has dissipated and that the United Nations Security Council deserves enormous credit for having recovered all the tactical nuclear weapons across the world. The second myth is that the repeat of the 9-11 attack is impossible because the current international system promotes the peace dividend where there is less international tensions and thus nations are encouraged to reduce their spending on the military intended to protect their borders against lawless neighbors. Chairperson, the reality is that the persistent notion that nations should reduce their military spending due specifically to, to the easing of international tensions is misplaced, as the case of the conflict between Russia and the neighbor Ukraine proves. Moreover, there is a growing concern regarding the acquisition of nuclear material to make nuclear weapons by nations that have agreed not to do so. 
or by non-state actors or even by terrorist groups. And that such nations, non-state actors and terrorist groups have undoubted capacities to reach the South African borders with long range missiles carrying nuclear warheads suggests that effective measures against this threat should be implemented by all means necessary. This presupposes that South Africa's international security is not guaranteed. In order to facilitate further successes in guaranteeing South Africa's international security, the amendment to the Convention of Physical Protection of Nuclear Material should be adopted and subsequently ratified as it seeks to ensure physical protection of nuclear weapons during the international transport, enhancement of cooperation in protection and recovery of stolen nuclear materials, as well as criminalization of offenses such as theft or robbery of nuclear material. This is particularly important for a number of reasons. Firstly, the adoption and ratification of the convention will complement priority seven of the midterm strategic framework 2019-2024 of the ANC-led government aimed at establishing a better Africa for all in the hope of promoting regional, global integration and improved peace, security and stability on the African continent. Moreover, by adhering to the convention, South Africa reaffirms its commitment in maintaining peace in the SADC region, as well as fulfilling its transformation objective of turning the region into a denuclearized zone for weapons. For instance, the insurgents' attacks linked to the Islamic State in Mozambique in Mozambique's north, northernmost province of Cabo Delgado since October 2017, pose a threat to nuclear material and radioactive sources as, they are, as the insurgents may get access to, their, to these sources and utilize them to accelerate the attacks. The cooperation between the republics of South Africa and Mozambique in line with the convention will greatly be valued as enabling the implementation of safety measures to mitigate the catastrophic consequences that could result from insurgents gaining access to nuclear material uh, <clears throat> and radioactive resources. Most importantly, such cooperation will enable the Republic of South Africa to guard its interest in the Romco pipeline that we just acquired a 75% stake. Secondly, the adoption and ratification of the convention contribute to priority two of the midterm strategic framework 2019-2024 of the ANC-led government aimed at achieving economic transformation and job creation, as well as securing supply of energy. In particular, the Quebec nuclear power station nuclear technology products, and the Safari One rely on important nuclear raw materials and equipment, including nuclear fuel, and thus may not have access to such for operations should South Africa fail to adopt and ratify the amendment. 
Furthermore, the NC-led government's goal of replacing Safari One with the multi-purpose reactor, which will create 5,000 direct and 26,000 indirect jobs during its construction. The building of the central interim storage facility to store nuclear waste material and the procurement of 2,500 megawatts of nuclear new build may not see the light of the day should the Republic do not accede and amend the uh, convention. Thirdly, South Africa has some of the busiest spots on the African continent and beyond, like the Durban port. This is the reason why the convention is important since it guarantees that nuclear materials and radioactive resources enter and leave the country safely and for the peaceful purposes. Perhaps important to this report, the convention will likely improve the, the import and export and transit of nuclear material and related customs procedures in relation to those circulating domestically within the country. It is important to have thorough oversight of the circulation of nuclear materials in the country's points of entry and exit, particularly the railway network and ports, considering the infrastructure vandalism and theft that are frequent in a freight transport sector. What is worrying is that the syndicates responsible for stealing fuel and vandalizing infrastructure are equally capable of stealing nuclear material for nefarious reasons that could put the lives of citizens at risk and endanger the supply Honorable of energy to the economy. Thank you very much. Your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you, honorable members. Are there any objections to the approval of amendment to the Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Material in terms of Section 22312 of the Constitution 1996 as it appears on the order paper? Uh, you have to, no objections agreed to. The secretary will read the sixth order. Consideration of report of Portfolio Committee on Justice and Correctional Services on amendments to regulations for approval in terms of section 97 in brackets two of the Child Justice Act 2008, Act number 75 of 2008. Thank you. I will now invite the Honorable Magwanishe on the virtual platform to introduce the report. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chairperson, Honorable Ministers and Deputy Ministers, Honorable Members. Amendments to the regulations to the Child Justice Act were tabled for approval on 15 February 2022 and referred to the Committee for Consideration and Report. It is necessary to amend the regulations to align them with the changes brought about by the Child Justice Amendment X28 of 2019. 
The intention is to promulgate the amendment act and the amended regulations on the same date. The proposed amendments to the regulations are largely consequential, addressing one, the increase of the minimum age of criminal capacity from 10 years to 12 years. Two, the retention of the rebuttable presumption for children who are older than 12 years, but younger than 14. Three, the manner of dealing with a child depending on the age of the child from the time of arrest to assessment, preliminary inquiry, and until the trial at the child justice court. Four, the removal of requirements that prosecutors must consider the cognitive ability of children when determining whether to prosecute a child. Five, that the criminal capacity of the child will only be addressed during a plea and trial in a child justice court. Six, prohibiting magistrates from dispensing with a pre-sentence report where a sentence can be given that involves a compulsory residence in a child and youth care center or imprisonment. The committee recommends that the National Assembly approves the amendments to the regulations in terms of section 97, subsection two of the Child Justice Act of 2008. I thank you, House Chairperson. Honorable member, I will now call upon uh, recognized political parties wishes to make declaration. The usual time for declaration of votes will apply. Honorable member of the DA. Thank you, Honorable uh, House Chair. Um, the proposed amendments to the regulations for child justice uh, are largely consequential and were dealt with uh, in detail by the uh, previous speaker. The Child Justice Act 75 of 2008 came into effect on the 1st of April 2010. It created special mechanisms, processes and procedures for children in conflict with the law. It introduced a non-pulentive model premised on African notions of justice that em embraced restorative approaches and principles of Ubuntu in the criminal justice process with the aim of breaking the cycle of crime. It promotes cooperation between government departments, uh, the Department of Justice, the police, the NPA, legal aid, correctional services, social development, health and education, and civil society. What it does not deal with in any uh, particular detail is what precisely should happen to children younger than 12 years. And this is a matter that uh, needs to be attended to. The 2021 Interdepartmental Annual Report on the Implement Implementation of the Child Justice Act is the eighth annual report submitted in terms of the Act. In the 2019-2020 Annual Report, the Department indicated that the National Intersectoral Committee for Child Justice was in the process of developing a five-year intersectoral strategic plan for child justice that includes the implementation plan of the National Policy Framework. and the recommendations from the research report on the impact of the Child Justice Act. However, no further information or progress is reported in the 2020-2021 annual report. And again, this is a matter of some concern. Also deeply concerning are the types of charges preferred against children awaiting trial. Rape was the top charge against children awaiting trial at 22% for 1,024 charges. Rape is the top charge against children aged 10 to 16 years awaiting trial. It is concerning that charges of rape involve, involve 116 children aged between 10 to 13, 168 children aged, aged 14, 
213 children aged 15, and 250 children aged 16. Charges of assault with the intent to do grievous bodily harm contributed to 16% or 751 charges of the total number of charges against children awaiting trial and murder charges registered 8% or 356. The top charge against children aged 17 years was assault with the intent to do grievous bodily harm. Charges of rape and assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm contributed to 24% of the total charges against children awaiting trial. No information is given on case back backlogs in respect of child justice matters. Despite the fact that rape was the top charge against children awaiting trial in the child justice courts, with 1,024 charges of rape, only 12 children were convicted of this crime. This low conviction rate may be linked to the challenges experienced by the South African Police Service Laboratories regarding the delayed release of the DNA reports. The ongoing impact of the delays in the DNA reports across the criminal justice system is a matter of grave concern. Considering that the purpose of the Child Justice Act was to steer children away from the formal criminal justice system and the directive in the Constitution that children should only be detained as a matter of last resort, it is concerning that children were sentenced to direct imprisonment, mostly by housebreaking with intent to steal and theft, which are non-violent economic crimes. The underutilization of restorative justice options may be an indication that the Child Justice Act implementation is not fully embraced by magistrates. There are clear challenges with the management of data and statistics with tracking children and they enter and leave the criminal justice system, and no time plans are provided for the completion of this process. It would assist greatly if there was a collective approach to risk management, and if all identified risks and challenges and responses were listed by stakeholders, it is critical to remedy any ongoing issues around the effective implementation of the Act. The regulations, unfortunately, do not and cannot address these serious concerns and shortcomings. Nevertheless, the DA supports the report. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognise Member of the EFF, I assume from Bishop platform. Yes, it is. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, the EFF rejected the Child Justice Amendment Bill back in 2019, and the regulations we're adopting today emanate directly from that Amendment Act. As we warned then, it is important that we take cognizance of a particular context with which influenced and continue to influence the conduct of most South Africans. This is particularly important when we make laws that affect children, many of whom grow up in dysfunctional families and communities because of the entrenched systems and structures that apartheid and colonialism designed for African people. It has been reported, for instance, that is a rapid escalation of a number of child-headed households in the country. These children are then more vulnerable to be drawn into criminal activity, drug abuse, and dropping out of school at, a, at an early age. The Child Justice Amendment Bill directly diagnoses the problem of assigning criminal capacity to children and increases the age of criminal capacity from 10 to 12 years old. While this is welcome, it's still not sufficient, taking into account the context with which most South African children are raised. Reliance on international standards may not find resonance in the South African context. Criminal capacity means an appreciation for the wrongfulness of an act and reconciling oneself with to that wrongfulness. So in the presence of all social ills facing the development of children in this country, can we for certain reconcile ourselves with a 12-year-old having criminal capacity? Why should we seek to criminalize children for failures of the state and society to provide a good enough foundation for their proper development as children? This age limit is even below what the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child recommended, even for countries without the burden that we have. That the UN committee recommended that state 
should set an age of criminal capacity at 14 or 16 years of age. While we support other provisions of the regulations, we do implore on the state to take responsibility for its own complicity in sustaining criminal activity in society, particularly that of relation to children. On this basis, we, re- we reject these, reg- these regulations. No 12-year-old should be judged to have criminal capacity in this country. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize member of the IFP. Honourable, from the virtual platform IFP. Uh, it seems like nobody at the virtual platform. Honourable Singh. I'm, I'm earning my salary today. Thank you, Honorable uh, Chairperson. Uh, Professor Simang was supposed to contribute to this debate. Uh, on consideration of the report of the Portfolio Committee on the Amendments to Regulations in Terms of the Child Justice Act of 2008, the IFP supports the Committee's observations and recommendations. Regulations, by their very nature, provide for the technical, practical detail of provisions of an Act and it is therefore critical that regulations do not delay the operation of an act. Unfortunately, we often see a delay in the publication of regulations or the failure of a minister to publish regulations as the discretionary power is not exercised, which really hinders the operation of the act. It is therefore critical that these regulations must be carefully drafted with clarity and should ideally come into operation simultaneously with the empowering provision in the act. As we understand, Honorable Chairperson, the Child Justice Amendment Act of 2019 intends to amend the Child Justice Act of 2008 to regulate the minimum age of criminal capacity of a child, the decision to prosecute a child, and to further regulate the proof of criminal capacity of a child. The Child Justice Amendment Act of 2019, although assented to, has not yet come into operation, and the date of operation is to be fixed by the President. It is necessary to accordingly amend the regulations published in terms of section 97 brackets 2 of the Child Justice Act of 2008 to align with the changes brought by the Child Justice Amendment Act. Amendments to the regulations were accordingly tabled in February 2022 and referred to the Portfolio Committee and the Amendment Act will come into play now with the regulations and the IFP agrees with the Portfolio Committee's recommendations that the National Assembly approves the amendments to the regulations to the Child Justice Act. In conclusion, it is vital that these amendments to the regulation be passed urgently so as not to delay the operation of the Act, which provides critical amendments to the Child Justice Act. The IFP accepts the report. So thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now we shall proceed. I recognize member of the FF Plus. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. A criminal justice system for children who are in conflict with the law and who are accused from committing offenses is unfortunately a given reality. Children should be treated with special care considering the background or upbringing and individual needs or circumstances. The Freedom Front Plus welcomes the consequential amendments to the regulations. Chair, the question, however, remains whether the amendments will be sufficient. The Freedom Front Plus will, however, support the bill. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. I recognize the member of SCPP. 
Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, the ACDP played a key role in the drafting of the Child Justice Act, which was and is a groundbreaking piece of legislation. And it aims to keep children out of detention and away from the formal criminal justice system, mainly through restorative justice measures, such as diversion, where such children do not present a danger to society. And it allows the child's background or upbringing to be taken into consideration and ensures that the individual needs and circumstances of children in conflict with the law are assessed before a decision is made on how courts deal with the child. It basically gives children a second chance where they've committed crimes to prevent them being exposed to imprisonment, where in many cases they, they can be raped and abused into a lifetime of crime. Now, over the years, the provisions of the Act have been applied with a degree of success. Lessons have been learned, however, resulting in various amendments, including those passed in 2019, to increase the minimum age of criminal capacity and to retain the rebuttable presumption for children who are older than 12 years but younger than 14 years. And the regulations being considered today are largely of a technical nature, which have been dealt with by previous speakers. Now, the Amendment Act has not come into operation, and it is envisaged that the draft regulations will come into operation on the same day. Therefore, once Parliament has approved the amendments to the regulations, a commencement date for the Amendment Act can be determined. May I also, in conclusion, to say that Parliament's required approval of these regulations illustrates that it is totally acceptable and in no way an infringement on executive power as well as argued earlier in the rejection of the Disaster Management Amendment Bill. It all depends on what the Act states regarding regulations. And in this case, the Act requires the regulations to be tabled and passed by Parliament before they come into operation. The ACDP supports this report. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognise the member of UDM. UDM supports the report, Chair. Thank you. Thank you very much. I recognize member of the A, honorable member ATM. We shall proceed, honorable member of the good. As chair, we support the report. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable member of the NFP. We shall proceed, honorable members. I recognize member, honorable member of the AIC. I now recognize the member of COPE. Honorable member of the PAC. The PAC supports the report, honorable chair. Thank you very much, honorable members. We shall proceed. Honorable member of Altama. Honorable Hendricks. I now honorable members recognize the member of the ANC. ANC. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson, <clears throat> members of the executive and the legislature, comrades and friends on various platforms watching today. Good afternoon. The African National Congress rises in support of the Child Justice Act 2008 Amendment of Regulations. As we commemorate Youth Month, we remember the sacrifices of the youth of 1976. The 76th generation 
led a militant struggle against the brutal apartheid regime in a manner and bravery which remains unparalleled. The young lions generation made South Africa ungovernable and incubated energy to the struggle for liberation, leaving the apartheid regime with no option but to negotiate. We salute their bravery and courage. Chairperson, the Child Justice Act 75 of 2008 seeks to establish a criminal justice system for children who are in conflict with the law and are accused of committing offenses in accordance with the values underpinning the constitution and the international obligations of the Republic. Among others, this act seeks to provide a mechanism for dealing with children who lack criminal capacity outside of the criminal justice system. The changes to the regulations are intended to bring same in line with the Child Justice Amendment Act of 2019, which amended the Child Justice Act of 2008. The most important provision of the Amendment Act is to raise the minimum age of criminal capacity from 10 to 12 years of age. The amendment also provides for assessing criminal capacity at a later stage, instead of it being done by the inquiry magistrate. It would now be done by the Child Justice Court that the Director General of Health must compile and keep an annual list of psychiatrists and psychologists who are prepared to conduct criminal capacity assessments. The amendments include the increase of the minimum age of criminal capacity from the age of 10 to 12. The rebuttal presumption is retained for children who are older than 12 years, but younger than 14. And then there are some technical amendments. The manner of dealing with a child, depending on the age of the child, from the time of arrest to assessment, preliminary inquiry, and until trial at the Child Justice Court. <clears throat> the removal of the requirement that prosecutors must consider the cognitive ability of children when determining whether or not to prosecute a child since they are not equipped to do so. That the criminal capacity of a child will only be addressed during a plea and trial in a child justice court and not during the preliminary inquiry and for diversion purposes and to prohibit a magistrate to dispense with a pre-sentence report where the court may impose a sentence involving compulsory residence in a child and youth care center or imprisonment. Chairperson, our children are the rock on which our future will be.
our greatest asset as a nation. They will be leaders of our country, the creators of our national wealth, who care for and protect our people. And this is a quote from President Nelson Mandela on the 3rd of June, 1995. I thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Nivot Drachen. Honorable members, now I recognize the Honorable Chief of the Majority Party from the Chamber. Honorable Chairperson, I move that the report be adopted. Are there any objections, Honorable members? Thank you, House Chair. Please what note the that objection that? of the AFF. Okay, noted. Thank you. Then the motion agreed to. Honorable members, I shall now request the secretary to read the seventh order of the day. Consideration of request for approval by parliament of African Charter on Statistics in terms of section 231, brackets two of constitution 1996. Thank you. I will now call upon Honorable James from the virtual platform. Honorable James, Jojo. Thank you, thank you, Honorable House Chair, Honorable Members. The African Charter on Statistics was adopted at the 12th ordinary session of the Assembly of Head of States and Government of the African Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on the 3rd of February, 2009. The purpose of this groundbreaking elaborative work by the Executive Council of the African Union uh, to request uh, for the development of the Common Charter was to address huge policy gaps regarding reliable statistics. There are still glaring policy gaps that exist between the supply and demand for reliable statistical information to integrate the African agenda for common challenges and solutions to address them. As a consequence to this challenge, the need to endorse the charter was addressed, which led to the adoption of the strategy for the harmonization of statistics in Africa. The intention of parties to this charter's statistical methodologies and processes used to gather such statistics should be congruent to member state statistical legislation or any legislation of that particular state. It does not mean that methodologies and processes should at all costs be similar in all states. We are aware that statistical methodologies and processes should conform to benchmark standards of collective reliability and authentic statistics. This serves to ensure that statistics play a crucial role for governments in Africa to understand the performance of the economy towards gross domestic product growth or stagnancy. Statistics help government to determine whether or not the labor market caters for the demands of the economy, as well as whether or not all elements of the planning system are helping towards 
addressing the demands of the population and societies. Reliable statistics help governments to fully uh, understand the extent to which the planning and allocated budgets cater for the needs of their people. Hence, statistics cannot be engineered, but they must be real so that real, not imagined challenges are addressed. For Africa to solicit and receive real financial aid where required, her statistical gathering methods and processes must be internationally benchmarked and must conform to international standards. The process to adopt African Charter on Statistics was approved by cabinet on the 9th of September 2015, and the memo initiating the finalization of this process was approved on the 3rd of May 2019. Statistics South Africa obtained opinion of the state law advisors on the Charter's consistency with the domestic law and the Department of International Relations and collaboration and cooperation supported the signing and ratification of the Charter. Therefore, the request for tabling of the African Charter on Statistics, its signing and uh, deposing with the African Union must be done in terms of Section 231, Subsection 4 of the South African Constitution so as to conform with international law provisions. It is in this light of this due consideration of these benchmarked principles of the international law and the provision of our constitution that the National Assembly consider signing and ratifying the African Charter, which is therefore my subsequent submission to this national uh, esteemed house to duly do so on behalf of South Africa as a country and nation. May this house ratify and sign the African Charter on Statistics. I so submit house chair. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable James. Now I recognize member of the DA. The African Charter on Statistics was adopted by the African Union for the purpose of having a framework for addressing the huge gaps that still exist on the continents between the supply and demand for statistical information that is needed for socioeconomic developments and for the African integration agenda. As I stated during the stats essay budget vote debate three weeks ago, ongoing changes in our economic and social realities continually exert pressing demand for useful statistical information that helps policymakers, businesses, and civil society to keep a finger on the pulse of evolving trends. In particular, more detailed statistics are needed and they are required more frequently if policies are to be responsive and effective. Meeting this increased demand for high quality statistics will thus require more innovation, partnership building and adequate funding so that we avoid the shambles that happened with the 2022 census, 
with its poor planning, operational delays, glitches with online functionality, under-resourcing and under-counting, especially in the Western Cape. Chairperson, it is timely and resonant that this charter should be tabled before this house a week after we commemorated Africa Day, because it highlights the importance of the link between statistical research and the aspirations and objectives of the African Union and its member states to make ours a continent of peace and prosperity for all. As my colleague, the Honorable Masango said during her Africa Day debate speech at this podium, we wish to see the problems of hunger, conflicts and corruption on the continent be replaced by abundance, peace and justice. The key to that transformation is how those information products promoted by this charter will shape government policy, decision-making and programmatic action. As mentioned just now by the Honorable James, statistics play a crucial role for governments to understand the performance of their economies, to help governments determine whether or not the labor market caters for the needs of the economy, as well as if all planning elements are addressing the needs of the poor, the unemployed and the economically excluded. On that score, Chairperson, the ANC national government is failing dismally, judging by worsening employment, investments and other socioeconomic figures. And the latest quarterly, label, quarterly labor force survey issued this week shows that this governing party has run out of ideas on growth and jobs. We are confronted with a pandemic of joblessness, represented by the millions of chronically unemployed people in these recent stats, which urgently propels the need for fresh economic thinking. Why are these ongoing findings of stubborn and growing unemployment in South Africa, especially among young people, not leading to radical and fundamental reform? such as scrapping the automatic extension of collective bargaining council agreements to small and medium enterprises who don't sign them in the first place and certainly can't afford them. And when will our heart sinking statistics finally persuade the government to repeal investment deterring, growth strangling and job killing legislation like the disastrous and draconian Employment Equity Amendment Bill currently sitting on the President's desk. Because Chairperson, these figures cannot be announced by our statisticians and then simply ignored to suffer a quiet death suffocating in Cabinet File 13. In simple terms, counting should lead to caring. I repeat, Counting should lead to a caring response from the states, and the work of crunching the numbers should result in crushing all obstacles to opportunity, growth, and development. We support this ratification, but Parliament must now ensure that our accession to this treaty will lead to action on policy and reform that brings flourishing employment, entrepreneurship, and excellence. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Member of the DA, next to Honorable, uh, the second row from the back. I'm not too sure, are you aware you're the only one with no mask? May you kindly do the better one. Thank you very much. I now recognize Member of the EFF. Chairperson, thank you very much. 
Uh, may I use the non-video because of the connectivity? Thank you very much. Chair, the African Charter for Statistics was adopted by the African Union in 2009 already, and it entered into force in, 2000, in 2015. The intention of the Charter are to improve the quality of the official statistical information available to public administrations and other activity areas. It recognizes that this largely depends to a large extent on effective collaboration between statistical data providers, producers, and users. The Charter also enjoins African governments to, to efforts undertaken to enhance the independence and status of statistics institutes and to secure appropriate stable finance, financing for statistical activities. The EFF is in support of the Charter. In this, we would, if this were to be taken seriously by African governments, it would make the, the work of integrating Africa, African economies much more streamlined and easier. We also urge all African governments to conduct a thorough audits of the, of the natural resources they have and who has vested interest in all these resources. There must be a proper population statistics reflecting levels of development, of income, of poverty, and of growth indicators. We therefore support the establishment of the African statistical systems, which according to the Charter is a partnership composed of national statistical systems, data providers, producers and users, statistics research and training institutes, and statistics coordination bodies, etc. Statistics units in the region, in the regional economical, economic communities, regional statistics organization, regional training centers, statistics units of continental organizations and coordination bodies at continental level. South, South Africa, South African states must play a pivotal role in assisting the development of credible statistical data for the rest of the continent and that this data must be scientifically rigorous, free of political manipulation and paint the true picture of African development across all the sectors. We therefore support, we are therefore in support of the Charter Chairperson and thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize Honourable Singh of the IFP. Thank you very much, Honourable Chairperson. Honourable Chairperson, the Africa Charter on Statistics is an important agreement for charting the development of Africa in general and South Africa in particular. Africa's role and integration in the world has long been diminished through the poor attention paid to understanding the people of the continent. Africa provides the rest of the world with the most precious and expensive resources. On the other hand, Africa remains one of the poorest continents in the world. In fact, a study undertaken in 2017 indicated that $134 billion entered the continent, mainly in the form of loans, foreign investment, and aid. However, some $192 billion was taken out, mainly in profits made by foreign companies who are tax dodging and the cost of adapting to climate change. Africa was found to suffer a net deficit of $58 billion a year. 
This honorable chairperson presents a problem for us. When Africa as a continent is being robbed of its wealth, which is needed for the beneficiation of its people. Whilst we share common challenges of development, we also share the common ills of weak governance, poverty, inequality, lack of political will and corruption. Therefore, the importance of statistics in this regard are to quantify the development needs of each community residing in Africa. We need to understand what is available to the continent in terms of resources and how these resources can be extracted and refined for the development of GDP per country against the needs of their inhabitants. In conclusion, Honorable Chairperson, in South Africa, for example, our diamonds and platinum and gold are extracted, then sent overseas for refining and then sold back to us. Why is this still the case? Government invests billions of rand into education and skills development, yet we rely on other countries to sell our refined products back to us. This must be addressed with the use of statistical data in order to benefit the development of South Africa and Africa. The IFP supports the request for this approval. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize the member of the FF Plus. Thank you, Chairperson. No uh, declaration from us. Thank you. I recognize member of the ACDP. Honorable House Chairperson, the ACDP acknowledges that statistical knowledge helps governments use the proper methods to collect data, employ the correct analysis, and effectively present the results. Statistics is a crucial process behind how we make discoveries in science, Make, making decisions based on data and enables us to make predictions. Furthermore, the ACDP is aware that the African Charter on Statistics is guided by member states' unambiguous and shared vision on the treaty establishing the African Economic Community adopted in Abuja, Nigeria in 1991, with the aim of promoting economic, social, cultural, and self-sustained development, as well as an integration of African economies. Jinping, the former president of the United Nations General Assembly, said, and I quote, the use of harmonized and reliable statistics in all fields of political, social, economic, and cultural activity is recommended for the monitoring of the implementation of the ongoing integration process in the continent on which African states embarked several years back. Although there's been significant pro progress in Africa's statistical systems, over the last few years with the advent of se several initiatives, it should be pointed out that there's an immense gap between the supply and demand for statistical information needed for development and for the African integration process. For the moment, quality and statistical data produced by the African statistical system is virtually inexistent. Mr. Ping further stated, it is to remedy this shortfall which is a setback to Africa's integration and development processes that the decision-making organs of the African Union took the historic step to call for the elaboration on the African Charter on Statistics, which will serve not only as a legal instrument to regulate statistical activity, but also as a tool for advocacy and the development of statistics in Africa. Honorable House Chair, in supporting the recommendation in this report, the ACD, ACDP asserts that of all the challenges Africa faces, the number one challenge is a challenge of poor leadership. 
like South Africa, Africa is not without moral, ethical, upright, and intelligent servant leaders. The African electorate must learn to choose these leaders rather than the corrupt, immoral, self-serving leaders of political parties. The African Charter on Statistics has the potential to assist the electorate in making these wise and wise and informed choices. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Your, your, your future is very dim. Um, I now recognize the member of the UDM. Chairperson, we support the Charter and the report. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. Member of the Honorable Member of ATM. We shall proceed, honourable members. I recognise member of Good. Uh, Chairperson, we have no declaration. Thank you. Thank you very much. I recognise member of the NFP. We shall proceed. I recognise member of the AIC. We shall proceed, honourable member of Cope. Honourable member of PAC. Honorable Chair, PAC supports the Charter. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Member of Aljama. Honorable Hendricks, we shall proceed. I now recognize Honorable um, of Member of the ANC, Honorable Mkweba. Thank you very much, House Chair. Honorable members, as government and a member state of the African Union, we are aware of the decisions and new policy guidelines of the African Union for accelerating Africa's integration process and the commitments to implement development programs and combat poverty should be based on clear evidence and therefore require a robust statistical data system which provide reliable comprehensive and harmonized statistical information on the continent. We recognize that statistical information is vital for decision-making by all components of the society, particularly policymakers, as well as economic and social players, and is, is therefore essential for the continent's integration and sustainable development. In agreeing with this charter, as the African National Congress were adamant in bringing about societal transformation in the country, and we also support the development of the African continent. We are thus aware of the need to enhance coordination and statistical activities in the continent. As the ANC, we acknowledge that statistical information informs policy and many organizations, such as private and public institutions, research institutions, civil society, and tertiary institutions, largely rely on the credibility of statistics produced by the state's SA. We also note and recognize that quality official statistics demands professional and adequate technical skills and capacity and respect for the fundamental principles of official statistics, professional ethics, and good practices. The ANC aligns itself with the objectives of the Charter, which is to address gaps between the supply and demand of statistical information needed for the development and attainment of the African integration agenda. It is important that the statistics should be based on empirical evidence, and that part of the Charter's objective is to serve as policy framework for statistics 
development in Africa, especially the production, the management and dissemination of statistical data and information at national, regional and continental levels to promote adherence to fundamental principles of production, storage, management, dissemination and use of statistical information in the African continent. Through the provision of credible statistics in Africa, we are adamant that this ratification will assist Africa in driving our African agenda towards 2063 of an inclusive, sustainable development and a concrete manifestation of the pan-African drive for unity, self-determination, freedom, progress, and collective collective prosperity pursued under Pan-Africanism and African Renaissance. We hope that this charter will also assist in attaining inclusive and sustainable economic growth and development of the African heads of state and governments at large. At home, we acknowledge Statistics South Africa as a critical organization in the work of building a developmental state through the collection of data and interpreting it so that it become useful information that guides policy formulation and implementation. The African National Congress, unlike many other political parties here and governments, is committed to driving social transformation through policies aimed at eradicating poverty, reducing unemployment and inequality. We therefore agree to the ratification of the charter and, uh, and were adamant that it will drive transformation in African for Africa to become more developed. We hope that the ratification of the charter will help assist the challenges affecting the continent, such as poverty, gender equality, interstate conflicts, the vast impact of climate change in the continent and economic development by taking Africa forward forward in various sectors of the economy. We are pleased to note that Stacks SA has undergone the rectification process and that during the process, it has obtained all relevant legal opinions. We are adamant that this charter will also assist the nation in advancing the National Development Plan of 2030. As the African National Congress moves in support of the African Charter on Statistics Report, I thank you, House Chair. Thank you, Honourable Members. Thank you, honorable members. Are there any objections to the approval of African Charter on Statistics in the terms, in terms of section 231 of two of the constitution of 1996, as it appears on the order paper? Any objections? No objection. The motion agreed to. Honorable members, the secretary will read the last order of the day. Consideration of annual report of Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence for financial year ending 31 March 2020, including period up to December 2020. I will now call upon Honorable JJ Marke from the Visual Platform. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Uh, maybe next time you must start with me uh, because there's load shedding here and I'm using a candle to read my speech. Uh, Madam Chairperson, I'm introducing uh, the annual report of the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence for the year ending 31st March 2020, including the period up to December 2020. 
Madam Chairperson, it is only a week ago that we had budget vote debates on the services that we conduct oversight over. I stated in my speech that we seem to be repeating whatever we said in the previous years, which means that even if there is some improvements in the service delivery of departments, the progress is, however, very slow. It is always very important to state the purpose of the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence. The Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence is established in terms of Section 2 of the Intelligence Services Oversight Act 1994, Act Number 40 of 1994. The purpose of the committee is to perform an oversight function over the intelligence and counterintelligence functions of the services which include the State Security Agency, the Intelligence Division of the South African National Defense Force, that is Defense Intelligence, and Intelligence Division of the South African Police Service, which is known as Crime Intelligence. The committee hereby presents its report to the Parliament of the Republic of South Africa in accordance with Section 6 of the aforementioned Act. During the year under review, For the start of the sixth uh, parliament, the committee was constituted on the 30th October 2019 after a process of undergoing vetting for top secret security clearance, which is statutory requirement. Prior to the establishment of the committee, an ad hoc committee was established to process strategic plans, annual performance plans, and budgets of the intelligence services. The five-month report was published on the 11th November 2020 due to the impact of COVID-19. Similarly, the annual report was also impacted by COVID-19. Maybe it is necessary to explain the process of preparing the report we are presenting here today. After the committee has prepared the report, taking into consideration all of its activities for the reporting year, Legislation prescribes that the report must then be taken to all services and the president of the country for them to double check and add or delete what they might deem to be threatening the security of the state, after which we then submit it for publication by parliament. The committee also deals with, amongst others, the Auditor General's reports of all services the certificates of all services prepared by the Office of the Inspector General of Intelligence, the Financial Intelligence Center, the OIC, and the interception charge. The committee will admit that all is not well in the services, maybe with the exception of the defense intelligence. In their report, our predecessors wrote, I quote, The committee made a case for the reconstruction of the state security agency, given the many weaknesses within the entity which the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence became aware. The president in his response indicated that he also had received a full briefing on those matters and had already taken a position that it was necessary to rebuild the state security. He would therefore sooner rather than later appoint a panel of experts to do an 
an exhaustive assessment of the entity and make recommendations on how the reconstruction could be designed. Close quotes. It is now public knowledge that this has been done and we are now on the implementation stage with the committee seriously worried about its slowness. Our report therefore focuses on making sure that all the recommendations are speedily implemented, including those that must be implemented by parliament. The report concludes with specific recommendations for all the services. Among others is for the SSA that the high level review panel report be implemented without delay that those that are implicated in financial irregularities be reported to the law enforcement agency and that consequent management be effective. In relation to crime intelligence, the committee recommended that the vetting backlog of the eradicate... your turn is up. Thank you very much. We shall proceed. Uh, we shall uh, proceed, honorable members. I now recognize any political party wishes to make declaration. The usual times for declarations of vote will apply. Any member from the DA from Bayshore platform? Thank you, Chairperson. This is a report for the year before last, and that still leaves the committee activities for the whole of 2021 to March 2022 as yet unaccounted for. Uh, before this House. If you had the opportunity to listen to last week's budget speeches, you'd know that our primary mandate as the JSCI is to perform oversight over the intelligence and counterintelligence functions of the three services, the State Security Agency, Defence and Crime Intelligence. We also meet with, amongst others, the AG, the Audit and Risk Committee and the Inspector General of Intelligence, whose term is now expired with no replacement in sight. The meetings are closed, no laptops or phones are allowed into the meetings or any handwritten notes removed from the meeting room. There have, to my knowledge, never been leaks from the JSCI, unlike the veritable torrent of information which hits the headlines from the SSA, CI and even DI uh, from either those desperate to spill the beans or alternatively to bury someone who is about to spill the beans. Yet the high-level review panel report said this committee suffered from excessive secrecy. Virtually nothing is released to the media. There are no updates, total radio silence on work done by people who are paid to do it. And that inevitably engenders suspicion in relation to our activities. Since the start of this five-year term, this committee, after a very, very long wait for our vetting to be completed, I finally found its feet and now sit sometimes three or four times a week. Unlike previous terms, we've had a single chairperson, although bizarrely, any illness on his part means everything just stops. The legislation doesn't allow for a deputy and indeed besides that is totally out of date in terms of various entities being realigned from the Zuma year deformities. Uh, but all efforts to update the legislation have seemingly been stonewalled. One of the major frustrations is that it's extremely difficult to reach a quorum, added to which the actual issues raised and reported are, are really dealt with by the departments and the recommendations detailed in this report seem to be considered to be of interest rather than instructions from parliament. This committee is known mostly for delays, meetings canceled without notice, ministers uh, who have what they consider to be more important things to do than come before the committee, departments that arrive unprepared and without having sent us documentation. That's not reflected in this report. 
I'm quite convinced that this unprofessional behaviour arises from the fact that there's no media coverage and that we're forced to stay silent about our outrage at the shabby treatment we so often receive. This is a situation all committee members spoke about openly during our budget debates. While some of the long vacant positions have been filled, today a whole investigation is ongoing into that, especially considering some were brought back from suspension and promoted. Once again, it seems a minister has overstepped, but she's gone off to pastures new, so as ever, we'll see zero consequences. As you see, the SSA had a key role to play in cyberspace protection, yet even the president's information has been compromised, so that hardly fills one with confidence. The SSA also claimed there would be capacitation of the Economic Intelligence Unit to be able to play a key role in economic development. Well, what a success that has been. There's a shopping list of combating organized crime, yet how many kingpins have been jailed? What you will see is that the SSA was found to have been involved in matters outside its mandate. For example, its involvement in the matter of the public protector pertaining to the Reserve Bank. Again, zero consequences. While we may not appear on the committee with our top secret security clearance, there are people dealing with the most sensitive information in the country, things that don't even come before the committee with no clearance at all. This report covers a period before the apocalyptic Russian invasion of Ukraine, but does touch on the ongoing war in Mozambique and our role there. We were briefed on Project Vesa in 2020 and criminal action and asset recovery were listed as priorities. We have yet to see any progress in this regard, which considering the Zondo Commission revelations has one asking if we will ever see any criminal action or asset recovery at all. 10 years on and Richard and Bluley has yet to appear in court for his CI looting. Since the top structure of crime intelligence was unilaterally removed during this time, when Head General Jacobs was suspended along with five senior colleagues, not a single criminal charge has been laid. This entity was gutted pretty much just in time for last year's riots. Perhaps the new NPC can resurrect something from this conflagration. As for the mysterious and much suspended and much vindicated Robert McBride, anyone know what's happened to him? I certainly don't. As a surface skimming exercise, this report is what it is. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize member of the EFF. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. The annual report for, for the year under review shows the general inability of the JCI to develop teeth that truly bite. One must ask uh, two pertinent questions. Why would intelligence agencies take the JCI seriously? Precisely because it meets in secret. Many who are engaged in corruption and irregularities within the agencies survive without being exposed in full view of citizens and voters. How much, and that's the second question, has the JCI done to subject information they receive about corruption, crime, and irregularities to a criminal investigation? Officials are exposed by the IGI, the AG, and information of criminality and corruption is given to this committee. Yet not a single person has been taken to either the NPA or investigated by this committee. So the annual report is about what has this committee done in its duties of oversight? Has it really developed teeth to the extent that the constitution requires parliament to exercise oversight of the executive? The committee during lockdown, further it was refused basic information trust that must be afforded to anyone who has, the, has been given basic 
who has been given high security clearance and vetting, and also sworn in front of a high court judge. Accordingly, the country must uh, not accept the explanation by the committee in the annual report that they could not do its job because of the lockdown or because uh, of high levels of uh, uh, COVID-19 infections. That we could not meet virtually on a secure line is totally false and a serious reflection of backwardness. That we accepted that explanation to begin with is a serious uh, condemnation, must be condemned by all of us uh, that a, a committee engaged in intelligence could not meet virtually. It's serious backward reason. However, the report pointed gloomy picture for intelligence agencies, key amongst which are, for an example, in the SSA, our Auditor General, or the Auditor General indicates that no evidence for programs achievements was submitted, meaning the SSA makes claims about having achieved or having achieved certain programs without giving any single shred of evidence for their claims. Annual financial statements were not prepared in accordance with the PFMA. No steps were taken to prevent wasteful and fruitless expenditure. They claim that uh, there is consequent management, but they provide no single shred of evidence for any of these claims. Above all, no approved standards to guide collection, storage, and the verification of performance information. The AG also points in relation to crime intelligence, uh, which also received a qualified audit that its goods and services are understated, compensation of employees is understated, operation leases are overstated by tens of millions of rents. Office of the inspector judges, for instance, indicates that the SSA applied for only 61 communication inspection interceptions compared to 622 by crime intelligence. This tells you that SSA is a bunch of incompetent liars who could not even be honest about their interception activities. In this financial year that is under review, without any of these challenges being fixed, the JCI approved APPs and allocated more funds to the SSA and crime intelligence. These intelligence agencies are no more of a cash cow, cash cow for corruption officials and politicians without the actual job of intelligence being done for the protection of the country in terms of uh, uh, national security or to combat crime with regards to organized gangs. The JCI remains generally toothless. They make no brave moves and there are no steps to stabilize the services. The report also does not detail how even steps to hold SSA and crime intelligence officials and defense intelligence officials who deliberately misled the committee were trumped by this committee and uh, the chairperson stopping any form of investigation. We reject this report because the JCI is incompetent. The JCI is not doing any of its duties. So we must reject this report as the EFF. Thank you. Oh, Honorable Josie, I, 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 I'm sure you know what is right. Don't repeat it again in any near future, please. Uh, you so can't tell me what to repeat and not repeat. I will repeat it again. The IFP. I now recognize the member of the IFP, uh, Honorable Singh. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Chairperson, I think. I think if there's any department that has ghost employees, this department will qualify, will be number one there. Because a number of them are paid, but you don't see them, you don't hear them. 
and they all hide under the skies of you know being intelligence officers and you don't know who they are and we don't even get appropriate reports from intelligence and i'm saying this from my own practical experience of people having been paid and doing nothing nothing within the department of intelligence but our intel is not supposed to be that way uh, taxpayers money must be accounted for uh, honorable chairperson our intelligence services are barely functional in terms of their mandate which is to provide the government with intelligence on domestic and foreign threats or potential threats to national stability the constitutional order and the safety and well-being of our people in fact in some instances it can be said that they actively work against their mandate and this is because state security has become politicized and weaponized against those who oppose the rule of law and constitutional democracy in this country Chairperson, we have terror threats looming on our borders. We hear allegations of terrorist organizations in neighboring countries and elsewhere on the continent being funded from within South Africa. These are real threats to the rule of law and constitutional order in this country. And this is one of the key areas of focus where state security should be deploying resources and not in setting, settling political scores. Given the highly sensitive nature of the mandate and information dealt with by the SSA, it is almost impossible for absolute oversight of the intelligence services. I don't serve on this committee because I'm not intelligent enough, I suppose. But from what I hear from those, from those who serve on this committee, they tell us that. This is precisely why it is necessary to have an inspector general of intelligence who reports to the JSCI and president as is required in the constitution and in terms of the intelligence services oversight act the jsci will only be as strong as the inspector general that reports to it this position must be filled as a matter of priority it is further imperative that the office of the igi be capacitated in terms of both human and financial resources as well as being independent from the ssa which currently supplies it with it equipment Chairperson, the SAP's crime intelligence is still faced with inadequate budget, which directly translates into operational hindrances. This includes the maintenance of CI capability, that includes the recruitment, infiltration, handling and support of informants, police agents, co-workers and contacts. Greater budget must be apportioned. In conclusion, Chairperson, we support the report, its findings and recommendations. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize member of FF Plus. Thank you, Chairperson. The FF Plus supports the report. Uh, no further declaration. Thank you very much. We shall proceed. Honourable Members, I recognize member of the ACDP. Thank you, House Chair. The ACDP will support this report. Um, just to say that the high-level panel on July's rioting did make a very severe indictment about the failure of reliable intelligence and made the recommendation that the urgent need to implement the recommendations of the high-level review panel on state security agency. And had those recommendations been implemented, possibly that unrest and the tragic loss of lives could have been avoided. However, clearly this report deals with uh, the prior period ending 31 March 2020, and we appreciate concerns that have been expressed by other parties in this regard. However, we will support this report. I thank you. 
Thank you, Honorable Member. Now I recognize Honorable Member of the UTM. I recognize Member of the ATM. I recognize Member of Good. House Chair, we have no declaration, but we support the report. Thank you. I now recognize the member of the NFP. I recognize member of the AIC. Member of COPE. Honorable member of uh, PAC. Honorable Chair, no declaration from us. Thank you very much. Honorable member of uh, Aljama, I recognize you. We shall proceed. I recognize member of the ANC, Honorable Hatebe. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable House Chairperson, um, Section 199 of the Constitution provides that security services must be structured and regulated by the national legislation. The above section further stipulates that to give effect to the principles of transparency and accountability, multi-party parliamentary committee must have oversight of all security services in the manner determined by the national legislation or rules and order of parliament. In this regard, the Intelligence Services Oversight Act was promulgated to give effect to the constitutional imperative contained under this section. Section two, subsection one, therefore creates a joint standing committee on intelligence whose mandate is to oversee and perform oversight function set out in this act in relation to the intelligence and counterintelligence function of the services, which includes administration, financial management, and expenditure of services. Honorable House Chair, by services, we refer to state security agency, crime intelligence, and defense intelligence. In terms of section two, subsection one B of the committee, we must report to parliament on administrative, financial management, and expenditure of services. This must be read in conjunction with section three, subsection A, which empowers the committee to obtain the following types of report and report to parliament. An audit report compiled by the auditor general in terms of section 22 of the Public Audit Act, any audit report issued by the financial statement of the services, any report issued by the auditor general on the affairs of the services. Now, honorable chair, Following its establishment on October 2019, the committee was seized with activities relating to the reform and services to ensure good governance, accountability, and transparency. Therefore, the context of the work done in 2019-2020 for the state security agent was informed by the finding of the high-level review panel. The newly constituted committee had found itself needing to oversee the recommendation made in this panel report. This included, but not limited to the legislation policy review. The committee had raised serious concern about the lack of the review of the white paper on intelligence since 1995. On instabilities, vacancy and vetting of senior management, the committee discovered that 
senior position at the state security agents were occupied by acting appointments. Since 2018, there was no permanent DG. Vetting backlog was a challenge at the time. No time frame was provided on the process relating to the president's instruction on the separation of the state security agent. Similarly, the committee was concerned with the audited financial statement on crime intelligence, specifically the lack of sufficient evidence provided for the achieved targets in relation to the annual performance plan. The crime intelligence did not ensure that irregular expenditure on sensitive projects were avoided. Some of the deviations were not approved by National Treasury. Honorable House Chair, in the case of defense intelligence, the committee found that RICA judgment was, an, was impacting negatively on defense intelligence regarding to bulk surveillance and human resource also challenges were identified there. In an attempt to play our meaningful oversight and effective oversight, the committee recommended the following to the services that the RICA terms of judgment and participation on bulk surveillance the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence should liaise with the Portfolio Committee on Justice and Correctional Services in this regard. Uh, subsequently, the committee also recommended that, and I want you to listen and listen carefully on this one now, that all implicated officials when it comes to irregularities must be reported to law enforcement agents. Consequence management must be instituted across all three services. The head of services of intelligence must report all failures of intelligence to the office of the inspector general on intelligence. In return, the inspector general will monitor progress and report to the committee on quarterly basis. Furthermore, we recommend that, that the high level review panel recommendation must be implemented without delay. The committee will, in this regard, the committee will be briefed on quarterly basis. We further recommend that all vetting bedlock must be eradicated as soon as yesterday. Now, the relocation of the state security agent into precedence is also another step towards the right direction in an attempt to strengthen civilian intelligence environment. And this, in our view, will provide the critical strategic leadership where needed. Similarly, in dealing with instabilities, the appointment of the ambassador, Tembisile Majola, as the new DG, indicates that things are slowly but surely turning towards better. Now, let us give credit where credit is due. If you have an ability and appetite to criticize, when those critics have been corrected, you must also find it within yourself to give credit where credit is due. The fact that you are called an opposition, it does not mean your only role is to oppose. Now, honorable chair, in conclusion, as we enter into the youth month, it will be a serious injustice on my part if I were to fail to take this opportunity and salute our fallen martyrs, the young lions of yesteryears of Vukai Bambe, who took 
upon themselves and vow to make the apartheid regime ungovernable. The generation that was committed to the attainment of political freedom in their lifetime. When they were faced and confronted with death, they stood firm, remain resolute and honorable chair. How can we forget one of our own when he said, my blood will nourish the tree that will bear the fruits of freedom. Mama, tell my people I love them. They must continue the fight. I speak of Solomon Galusha Mashango, Anthony Lembede, Mkolisim Jombozi, Anelem, Abimda, Adelaide Tambo, Oliver Tambo, Nelson Holisasa Mandela. The list is endless, lest we forget. Their sacrifice shall remain forever indelible in our hearts. Aluta, continue. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Now I recognize the Chief People of the Majority Party from the, from the Chamber. Chairperson, I move that the report be adopted. Thank you very much. The motion is that adopted. I put the, the question to the House. The motion agreed to. Honourable members, let's conclude. The House Chair, House, House the Chair, House Chair, House Chair. Just uh, agenda House. No, you have moved too quickly. Please note the objection of the EFF. Noted. Honourable members, the objection of the EFF shall be recorded. That concludes the business of the day. The House is adjourned. Hey.